Battle Bond and SCG Khan on episode 80 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 80 of So Many Insane Plays, our SCGCon report and Battle Bond preview. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Have we really done 80 of these? That's incredible. <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs> if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. We actually or check any in. feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. Although the best way to get at us is just to tweet us. (laughs) Yes, that is absolutely true. So for announcements this episode, Steve, let's see. Upcoming tournaments. There is a vintage event in the Bay Area, but it'll probably, it's on July 1st, so by the time folks are listening to this, it'll probably have a lap. Oh, okay. Um, doesn't look like there's anything else on the calendar for July, so I'll just notify folks as soon as I see something in August. Fantastic. We want to give a bit of an update on the VSL and the current state of things, but first, Steve, do you have any other content updates? Well, I guess I'll just mention the history of vintage. Um, the last chapter, chapter 25, which covers the year 2017 and has the conclusion to the book with it. So it's functionally kind of two chapters uh, was published probably earlier, early, early June. I don't remember exactly, but relatively recently. So if you haven't seen it, the entire uh, book, so to speak, from chapter one to 25 introduction to conclusion is now out there. Um, And it, it was fun to wrap it up. The conclusion kind of drives home the thesis about the different schools of magic that emerged in the early years of of the game before the format constructed magic was even designated type one and persists today in really structurally similar forms. But the real announcement is is kind of what's happening in terms of compiling it and updating it. It's been kind of a chore to go back and, you know, because the first chapters, Kevin, were written in like <laughs> 2011 and 2012, published in 2012, I believe. Yeah. And, um, you know, actually, I had to rewrite the entire introduction. The original introduction to chapter one was one page. And is now like five pages. <laughs> um, and then I've been expanding the 1993 and 1994 and 1995 chapters, partly because there are minor things that need to be corrected, but more because in the course of writing this book, I've encountered new anecdotes, ideas, data points, citations. There have been things that have been published. For example, there was a long form piece about the creation of Wizards of the Coast and the creation of magic. I forget exactly where it was published, but in, a, in one of the major, like a wired type, uh, you know, column magazine publication um, that had some additional, you know, stuff that I could I could use. And I also, remarkably, Kevin, this is kind of timely. Folks had probably many, many, many folks. In fact, over twenty thousand folks were watching the beta draft at yeah. GP Vegas. Did you watch it, Kevin? I did. It was awesome. It, it was fascinating, wasn't it? Yes, it <laughs> we was. could have a whole episode about that. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just, I want to plug, LSV wrote a report for his portion, so go read that. Um, but remarkably, so at Gen Con in 1993, when Magic was uh, officially launched, and there's a whole set of stories about that, about you know, the last minute shipments, about what Richard, uh, Peter Atkinson was going to do this kind of swing around the bend and, you know, meet folks at Gen Con. And, and I actually wanted to add some of that into my narrative. But 
The thing that I didn't add in my narrative that I just was kind of gobsmacked that I didn't was the tournament report from the very first sanctioned magic tournament at Gen Con at the launch of Alpha, a limited edition. And, you know, it's not like there was a lot of coverage because this was like literally two days after Magic was launched. So Magic was launched, I think, on the Thursday of Gen Con, <laughs> right? And it right. sold out on Friday. And there was a Saturday tournament. And the tournament, we actually have uh, information about it. Some far-sighted Watsi uh, employee decided to actually document the final game of the final match. Cool. And it's this match between Alex Parrish and someone Townsend. I can't remember his name. I'm probably butchering the names. And there are, we don't have their deck lists, but it's obviously alpha. So, And there was a play-by-play <laughs> that included the cards Orcish Oriflame, Terror. Um, uh, there was a, uh, a, um, a Juggernaut, I believe, involved. You know, uh, all the cards that we just kind of saw drafted up, right? Like you know, that. there was, there a, was giant, a juggernaut involved. There was a giant spider, <laughs> a Mons <laughs> Goblin Raiders. Um, anyway, remarkably enough, I didn't, I didn't have any of that in my narrative, and that's the very first tournament, the very first vintage tournament, I guess you could call it. Right. Um, was constructed, which means that players could play as many. You know, if they purchased enough packs and starter decks. They could build, you know, whatever they they could acquire at the. I think they sold. So we know unlimited edition was designed uh, designed to be well. Alpha, right, limited edition was a ten million card set, right? And alpha <laughs> being the first two point six million of the ten million print run. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think they sold. I forget them. Hundreds of thousands of cards at Gen Con launch week were sold. I think it might have been I, the numbers in my updated chapter i don't have it in front of me it mm-hmm. might have been like four hundred thousand cards or even a million cards sold the very first weekend so that's a lot of a lot of power that people could have used if they had access to it right. um there are also interesting anecdotes which i hadn't put in there like the fact that alpha has the reason alpha has different rounded corners was because europeans take the month off in august and carta mundi which is the printer they actually took the month of August off to clean the dies and, and fix the dies, and they rounded the dies. And when they got back to printing the the, the second 7.4 million cards for, for limited edition, they had changed the die corners. You know, whenever mm. it came back from, from uh, uh, vacation, <laughs> the European <laughs> vacation. Um, anyway, so there's a lot more stuff in there and more, more tournament stuff. But the big thing I wanted to mention, I'm, I'm covering the, bearing the lead here, was that my search investigatory skills have improved significantly, apparently. Nice. Because I, I used the Usenet, which folks who are old, our age will remember, was kind of the the main the main kind of backbone of the internet at the day, right? You people use email, but the Usenet was really the main communication tool. It really wasn't the World Wide Web until a few years later. And um, the Usenet was where Magic players. Uh, posted tournament announcements where they discussed strategy and index where you know where they um did trading and in fact in the early issues issues of the duelist they actually advertised the various usenet message boards they'll say like go to you know trading.rec.magic.whatever mm-hmm. so actually that was the, the wizards of the coast all the wizards of the coast staff like jim Lim, tom wiley all these people they were posting on the usenet so you could go to the usenet and talk with wizards of the coast staff and interact with them in a really robust way, much like you can do on social media today. Um, but, you know, I had all these decks I was searching for. It's a little, searching for deck lists on the Usenet in 1994 is like looking for a needle in a haystack. It's hard to find. But something just occurred to me, and I don't know why this didn't occur to me six years ago when I was originally writing these chapters, 
But the first couple issues of The Duelist, the first four, in fact, have tournament announcements in the, um, in the special Duelist Convocation news section. And so what I did, Kevin, is I used the specific names of the tournament events, mm-hmm. and I put that into the Google groups. Google actually bought the entire Usenet, and, and I put it in as a Google search in the Usenet groups, and miraculously, I found deck lists that I never would have been able to find if I was just, you know, searching thousands of, 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 of pages of the Usenet. So awesome. I was able to update my 19... It is awesome. And I was able to update my 1994 chapter with new deck lists that I didn't have before. Really cool deck lists, mostly some mind twist deck lists and some other deck lists. But um, so the 1993 chapter has been completely updated with the introduction. The 1994 chapter is almost done being updated. Um, the 1995 chapter I'm, I'm working on. Um, and so we're going to get those launched. And Jayco and I in Eternal Central have been trying to figure out uh, how to turn this into a book. The problem is, Kevin, I compile all the chapters, the PDF chapters, and they were almost 700 pages. Yikes. So that's not, in the gut book, is 400 <laughs> pages. So that's not really going to work as a, you know, whatever. The encyclopedia so vintage. Yeah, exactly. So we're thinking about how to maybe turn it into a more of a coffee table book than the gush book, but it, it requires a bit more work and it, you can't just sure. do it order to demand. So we're going to think that through. But if you did get a chapter or you decide to get one, the good news is that when we're done updating all the chapters, Jayco, and if you've bought all the chapters, Jayco's going to send, we're going to send you uh, the final version of it in a compiled PDF, in stamped PDF. So you'll get that. So never fear. I just want everyone <laughs> to know that. But I also want to encourage people to, um, if they, if you haven't gotten the 93, 94 chapter, very shortly, the 94 chapter will be updated and you can see read the kind of modern introduction you know that i've completely revised and expanded and everything else so we're getting there but um it's it's slow going good so in addition to that we want to talk about before we get to our main content our the status of the vsl we are recording on the night before (laughs) our first playoff round of the team vsl and our first playoff opponent first if we're lucky enough to defeat them is Channel Fireball, none other than. Tough matchup. <laughs> yep, and we have discussed in prior episodes how we how we narrowly won our first, <laughs> our first week in the VSL and how we narrowly lost our second, and so we don't have buys for the playoffs, so we're going to have to do it the hard way. And we just got deck lists today for what CFB submitted for tomorrow night, and it is... It is quite an adventure, what they've put together. We've, we've got to talk a little bit about this. Yeah. So CFB did one of a handful of things that we, off the air, have theorized were possible in this format. And that yes. is, <laughs> can, can you conceptually submit a whole bunch of versions of the same archetype, theoretically? Now, we pushed this envelope a little bit with workshops in that we submitted workshop aggro and we submitted workshop control and we submitted workshop combo. So we, we did this a little bit, but CFB for this week has done so with dredge <laughs> and it is a, it is a thing of beauty to behold. Now we're not going to talk through their whole lists here in the, you know, in detail, but they submitted effectively four dredge decks. <laughs> Three of them are what you might consider more traditional dredge decks. We're talking about narcomoebas and icarids and blood guests and, and dread returns and cobble therapies. The fourth is, is more of a lands deck which has its own uh, benefits, but is, is far more of a control deck than the typical aggro-focused, aggro-combo kind of dredge decks. 
the, the interesting thing that they did is they decided which cards were critical to dredge that that counted in terms of our overlaps because recall that yeah. lands and mana producers do yeah. not right. so they get bizarre and serum powder and any right. other lands for free All four of these decks have four serum powders and four bizarre baghdad yeah yeah exactly and then they decided after that what the critical components are that just had to be in a dredge deck effectively <laughs> and that produced some really interesting results because What's common across all their decks is two, yeah, two Gregory Grave Trolls, but three of them have four. That's right, mostly four, but in one case only two. Four Narcomebas is definitely a standard, and some combination of Dread Return and Cabal Therapy. Now, every one of them has at least two Dread Returns. <laughs> Wait, every one of them has exactly two Dread Returns, and then yeah. they have between zero and four Cabal Therapies. Then <laughs> they overlap on on various things depending on which pair of dredge decks you're looking at. So two of them have Bridge from Belows, for example, and two of them have Stinkweed Imps, two of them have Golgarik Thugs. They've dug deep, though, which is great. They've dug deep and found additional dredgers in the form of Shambling Shell and yep. Greater Moss Dog, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in addition to Dark Blast and Life from the Loam, which are not that unusual. Shambling Shell is actually a card that I think I may have used in one of our very, very first dredge deck. Right, right. Back in the day. Because it's the reason I, I played it I over, I'm trying to remember, it might have just been in test, test list, but the, part of the reason is because it's not impossible to cast it, and it's not small either. Yeah, agreed. And then they have distributed their various other cards, like Dread Return targets or supporting dredge creatures. So... They've got Bloodgast and Prides Amalgams in one. They've got Fate Stitcher in another. They've got Icarids in another. They've got, they dug deep and got Nether Shadows in the fourth one, which is great. Their Dread Return targets are all over the place. Gristlebrand Ashen Rider, Sun Titans to go with Sahili Rai, Flamekin and Elish Norn, Chancellor of the Annex, and one, one deck has Bane <laughs> of Progress in it. The Lands deck does. <laughs> and then there's mixtures of spells, uh, supporting spells. One of them has main deck Hollow Ones plus Leyline and Unmask. One of them has the whole counterspell package. So Forest, Misstep, Brindrake Trap, and one Disrupting Shoal, which is fun. I love that. Yep. And then one of them has one mana spells. For dredging, careful study, faithless looting, and breakthrough. So it's a mana dredge list, and that one has a lion's eye diamond in it too. So and more lands. Oh, it has black lotus as well. So this is a fantastic exercise. That's four dredge decks, all of them overlapping by no more than twelve cards. Any two of them, I mean. And then they submitted two other decks. They've got which is hilarious <laughs> because they stuck with the theme and, and named this deck Lock Dredge, and it, it's Workshop Aggro. And then they named another deck Combo Dredge, and that's Paradoxical Outcome. <laughs> so they right. submitted, in name, six Dredge decks. In, in practice, four Dredge decks. This is going to be a ton of fun, and it produces what I think is going to be some hilarious interactions, both from a gameplay, but also from a, an observer and audience standpoint, because one of the things that's going to be funny is that we, uh, the, we have the ban on for this week in the playoffs and for the rest of the playoffs, which means our team gets to choose to ban one of these decks. We clearly cannot ban their quote-unquote dredge deck because there's four of them. So at, at least they're going to be bringing three dredge decks to the table against us tomorrow night. And at any given point, they could mulligan and then play a Bazaar of Baghdad, and we still wouldn't know <laughs> wouldn't which know. of four decks they were playing. <laughs> <laughs> which it produces a different kind of enjoyment and interest it's, in the stream and for the audience. It's a fascinating gambit. 
It, yeah, it is. And and the reason I call it a gambit is because almost every team, not all, but almost every team, at least in recent rounds of the v- Team VSL, has banned Dredge. Mm-hmm. And so if you were designing decks on the assumption that your opponent is designing decks with the assumption that they are <laughs> going to ban your Dredge deck, this is a super trump to that strategy, right? And I think that yep. would actually work really well against most of the teams in the field. The problem is they drew us. <laughs> Where yeah. I have, it's not that we don't fear dredge, we respect dredge, but we would never design, and we, from from the very first round that we played in, um, we were clear that we were not going to go that route. Yes. That we were just going to respect dredge. That you know, It's an interesting cost-benefit, right? The, design, the structure of this, this format is that you get cyborg slots by banning dredge. Mm-hmm. But my opinion was, and I think you shared it, Kevin, that it's not enough of a benefit. You you get right. some str- tactical advantage, but 15 cards is actually enough that you... I mean, if you remove all the dredge hate, you get a, you don't go from like 55 to 80% in any match, right? Exactly. Because you did that. So it's not really enough of an edge, an advantage, in my opinion. Exactly. And, and the ability to ban a deck also means that if there's something you're really soft to, that you don't, you know, you can ban it after the decks have been revealed or unveiled. Right. So I think it was a gambit. It was a high risk, high reward. Unfortunately for them, we're loaded to bear. Yep. Two of our decks have four Leyline of the Voids. <laughs> yep. There is no deck of ours that has that has no game against Dredge. We're we're, yeah. we're loaded. We're loaded for that. Yeah. Um. So they can't stop us in that regard. Um. Anyway, I think it's a fascinating structural thing. It. You know, Kevin, you and I, one of the things that we talked about early on in this season of the Team VSL was what are the decks that you would intuitively think can't be built in duplicate, mm-hmm. but can be built? So one of the questions I asked Jaco and Kevin was, is it possible to build a second dredge, two dredge decks? Is it possible to build you know, two workshop aggro decks? I wanted to really push, is it possible two paradoxical outcome decks? I wanted to really push that concept, not because we would necessarily go that route, but because I wanted to explore the parameters of the format. And Kevin, I remember one, distinctly one conversation we had was, okay, I mean, kind of just laying out the parameters you just covered, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, if you're going to build dredge, you're going to probably need two to four serum powder, four bizarre, <laughs> and then you're going to have to... The interesting thing is there are enough dredgers that you can probably split. And I think what we had actually talked about, Kevin, was we would you could split like two Golgari Grave Trolls and then you would have one deck would have the four stinkweed imps, and the other deck would have like four Golgari thugs or something like that. Right, right. And then you could get you could get up to the ten dredgers that way. Um, uh, they didn't go that route. Only one of their decks has two two grave trolls. The rest have four. So they basically just locked in four serum powder, four bizarre. Four, uh, bizarre doesn't count, so yep. it doesn't it's it's you know you have even more freedom there. Four narcomoeba, four grave troll, and then fill out the rest there. But they really broke open, I think, uh, <laughs> the possibilities within this, this set of constraints. They definitely did. And it also demonstrates the reason why we didn't end up going down this road for Dredge, because as you said, we considered it. And the simple truth is that all of these Dredge decks are, in at least some ways, and sometimes significantly, inferior to the, the, a standard Dredge build. If you look at any one of them, it is lacking something. One of them has shambling shells instead of a better dredger, right? One of them has uh, only two cobble therapies. 
couple of them actually, and one of them has none, but that's the lands deck. It doesn't really use therapy. One of them has only eight dredgers in it, for example. Yeah. And one of them has extra mana sources <laughs> because they want to be casting spells. So they all have sacrificed something, but they've all kept the core. I mean, each one of these decks is capable of getting that baseline kind of dredge opening. Yeah. bizarre, have a dredger, and have inevitability. So all of these decks are still a threat, even if it's not quite as consistent as the best possible build of the deck is. Right. I think that's I think that's right. But um, just to be clear on one thing, we never considered four dredge. We were considering <laughs> whether we could submit two dredge decks. Right. So, that's, um, that's exactly right. I I'm a little surprised they had Nether Shadow on one of their lists. I I think I you know Ellis tweeted that you know they they didn't really get a chance to t- test these. Um, granted, that deck doesn't have a lot of mana, but in my testing with dredge, in my experience, Ashen Ashen Ghoul is way better than Nether Shadow. Ah, uh, I can see why. Sure. But yes, I, given all the things that have been going on for Channel Fireball lately, I, I don't expect they got as much time to test this <laughs> as, as we did necessarily. And isn't there a um, isn't there a black creature uh, that is it like one mana and you can play it from your graveyard? It's oh yes. like a two What is that? Yeah, that's a zombie uh, grave crawler. Yes. Yeah, that would have been a card I would have considered as well. Well, the good news is for aspiring dredge players is, <laughs> and this is not news, is that there are just a ton of creatures that skirt this line, basically. Hmm. Gravecrawler says you can cast Gravecrawler from your graveyard as long as you control a zombie. So, but there are just tons of but, other black creatures that you can get out of your graveyard directly but, into play for various resources. But it's also a zombie. So if you have them in your graveyard, and you have one in your hand, you can just play it, and then the rest can come, you know, you can play the rest. Yep, absolutely. And with Bridge from Below, it's not that difficult to get zombies, so... Right. Yep. Well, so this was a fun creative exercise. We'll see how it pans out. Uh, You won't hear this recording until after you know (laughs) the results, theoretically. Well, well, let's let's bring our audience into our discussion about what we're thinking about banning. Okay, go ahead. Well, uh... (laughs) You know, part of the decision of what to ban, it's interesting, it's, it's, a, it's a leveling discussion, because mm-hmm. you begin by trying to figure out, you know, how, what are the decks that match up against our deck, our decks, right? And which, which deck do we think is strongest against our slate of deck? And then there's also the consideration of the players, like which, we know LSV, for example, just won, uh, or got second place in the Vintage Challenge with the PO deck. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you it's not just about what deck matches up, but also taking away the strongest, you know, that's the second level is the the strongest punch from one of the better best players. The other the other consideration, here's where things get really interesting, is if you ask yourself, what are they likely to ban? And how does what they're likely to ban affect our decision of what to ban? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Right. The problem is it's hard for us to really assess what they're going to ban <laughs> because you have to kind of pick your poison. It's like, you know, we have two decks with four ley lines, the dredge deck and the, and the, um, our four color control deck, um, five color, five color control deck, <laughs> keeper, <laughs> the well, deck, you know, Steve, I must interject. We haven't actually told the audience here what decks we've submitted. Oh, by the time this okay. goes live, it will be public knowledge. Of course it already is. But just for review, we submitted just guy mentor, paradoxical mentor, workshop aggro, stacks pitch dredge and five color control which is the the keeperish deck that steve just alluded to which has a number a number of planeswalkers in it which is hilarious yeah <laughs> and uh so the five color control deck has four ley lines 
and Jaco's pitch dredge has four ley lines in the board as well. Right. But it, in addition to that, our other decks are still just loaded for bear. You know, and Mentor has cages and priests and rest in peace. The paradoxical deck has cages and crypts, as you would expect. Yep. Workshops have cages and crypts, as you would expect. <laughs> and then the stacks deck has cage and bridges and tabernacles it's, it's and spyglasses. Yeah. Yeah. And so there is there's no there's no deck they can just leave in this gauntlet, which is just a you know a cakewalk for dredge. We are prepared across the board. Right. So they have to decide whether they want to go like um I think what the the fulcrum for their decision at this third level is are do they want to ban the deck that just seems like it's the most fierce against dredge? Mm-hmm. Or do they want to hit something that they think like is just more powerful in some sense? So, you know, they could say they could look at our decks and say you know, deck X is by far the best against dredge because it has the most dredge hate. We'll get rid of that one, right? Right. I don't know what that would be. Maybe it's the the four color control deck, Kevin, because it's got four ley lines and then does it have other graveyard hate? Oh, he also has two priests. Yeah, two <laughs> priests. <laughs> and yeah. That maybe that or maybe the just guy deck, just in terms of quantity of graveyard, right? Right. So that's one approach. The other approach is they might look at it more strategically as opposed to the tactical level and say. Um, you know, the, the like the paradoxical outcome deck is just the fastest, and and it also has all this hate. So let's just get rid of that because it can both race and has a lot of hate, right? Right. So so it's they have to go one of those those places. Um, it's it's just not clear which one they'll do. But if they, for example, ban ban par- our paradoxical outcome deck, which is what I'm predicting, what does that mean for what we ban? What it yeah. means what it means is that it, they've left us uh, left us with two blue decks. One tempo, one extremely controlling, um, uh, two shop decks, and dredge. And looking at their slate, right? I mean, they've got a dredge deck that's one dredge deck that's like really loaded for bear for workshop, mm-hmm. right? With like the four ancient grudge, which makes that a strong consideration. Because if we take that out, do they have anything that can actually beat, besides the paradoxical deck, do they have anything that can beat our um, workshop deck, right? right? Right. Like, can they actually beat <laughs> um, bri- bridge, ensnaring bridge? that which is an open question right because like for example the their first dredge deck only has between the main deck and sideboard two ingot chewer for artifacts that's it that deck yeah, really is, has a, oh, i'm sorry has nature's claim they have five yeah. artifact removal spells in the in that deck and then four in the next one two claims two chewers but that and deck, then the third deck has four ancient grudge is the problem main deck understood understood <laughs> yeah and then their other decks have two chain of vapors to go with counter spells. Oh, right. and they can also dread return an Ashen Rider in one of those right. decks too. So, and there's Bane of Progress in the lands deck. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's interesting, right? It's it's hard to it's hard to exactly navigate that. Yep. My guess is that there are. I mean, if we had had a deck like one or two decks that were really loaded for Bear for Dredge, and it was a little more concentrated and less diffuse, they would probably ban that. But because it's not, because it is more diffuse, I think they're just going to go for our most powerful deck. So I think they're going to ban our Paradoxical deck. And if they don't ban that, I think they will ban our Jeskai deck. And if they don't ban that that deck, I think they're just going to go for the Dredge deck because they just don't want to play the Dredge Mirror. <laughs> well, and, and our Dredge deck is good in the Mirror, too. They have right. access to, let's see, they have one Dredge list that has Leyline made. So that one's better than ours in the Mirror. They have another one that has three ley lines in the board, not four. So that's a close competitor to ours. But then their other two are are tricky. 
there are other two that are their bridge from below decks, ironically, because they don't have bridges in every deck. <laughs> their other two have no ley lines, which gives us a bit of an advantage. And they have access to Nature's Claim or Chain of Vapor for those decks. So it's a tricky balancing act for them. And you're right. I, I, I'm of the conclusion that they will probably conclude that they want to ban a powerful deck of ours since they they can't cut us off of hate and they're probably going to have to rely upon a their lands deck with the four ancient grudges to clear away one of our one or both of our workshop decks right and i'm not convinced it's capable of doing that mind you (laughs) (laughs) but because that that deck has dread returns but its dread return targets are four chancellor of the annex and one bane of progress which are yeah weak against shop (laughs) Uh, well, no, Bane of Progress is not, but Chancellor yeah. of the Annex is, is not especially good, especially against uh, Ensnaring Bridge. So it's, <laughs> it seems like a, a bit of a variance play for their lands deck against Shops. It could could get one over on a Shops deck, and it could really fall flat. So we'll, have, so, we'll just have to see. So what do you think that they're going to ban, Kevin? I, I think they're going to ban our Outcome deck. And if they don't, what do you think they'll ban after that? If they don't ban our Outcome deck, I think they're going to ban Stacks. Interesting. Be- because Ensnaring Bridge is just incredibly good against their whole gauntlet. <laughs> yeah, especially in game ones. <laughs> especially, yeah, we've got game one Ensnaring Bridge, and <laughs> at least one of their decks is ju- just concedes to it on the spot. And we, should, con- we needed Serum Powder to find it reliably. Their control, yeah, right. Their control list cannot beat a resolved Ensnaring Bridge in game one because it has no removal in the main and its kill condition is a Sihili Rai combo. So I guess, I guess, yes, it can beat Dredge if they get Sihili in play and just plus her enough times. <laughs> so there's that possibility, but that seems uh, very, very unlikely. So what do you think, we haven't decided, and we don't have to decide until tomorrow, but what do you think we should ban, Kevin? I think we're loaded for bear enough for Dredge that we shouldn't touch any of those lists. And but then before, it's just, Before then, you go further on that, let yeah. me just add to that and say, by submitting four Dredge deck, that really narrows our options. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. so have, it really, in my yeah. opinion, it narrows it really in all likelihood to the stacks, I mean, to their workshop deck or the PO deck. I, I would basically agree. And I believe that their workshop deck is at a disadvantage against most of our lists. Jayco's control deck has multiple main deck <laughs> Coligon's commands as well as Abrupt Decay. <laughs> and then post sideboard, he has access to two Ancient Grudge in addition to other removal. Uh, all of our decks are good against shops, basically. And our stacks deck is incredibly good against shops if it can find and resolve Ensnaring Bridge. So I'm of the opinion that we don't need to worry about their workshop list. It's a perfectly fine list, and it's yeah, it can win some games. But they have their sideboard has two dismembers, four cages, three rods, three precursors, sorceress, spyglass, tormod's crypt, and witchbane orb. You'll notice that none of those cards say remove target artifact from play. <laughs> <laughs> so this list is cold to Ensnaring Bridge plus um, Null Rod. Well, it, yeah. It has no yeah. outs to Ensnaring and Bridge plus Null Rod. And both of our deck have Null Rod, by the way. Yes, exactly. The, the, work, the Stacks deck has three Null Rods main deck. Yeah. And the other one has, and fourth and one in the fourth in the sideboard, and the Workshop Aggro deck has three in the sideboard. Yeah. And our that, Stacks deck also has access to two sources Spyglass <laughs> out of the board, which can just turn off their uh, Ballista and is functionally a Null Rod for the purposes of winning the game. So anyway, I what that means to me is that I feel very good about, about the way our shop decks, both of ours, match up against theirs. And so I believe the logical conclusion is that we should ban their outcome deck. The problem is that we have all these Null Rod decks. 
I mean, the, <laughs> the Jeskai deck has a pair of Stony Silence. The, you know, the shop decks have Null Rods. I mean, you know, is it is it really that bad? I mean, it's it seems really hard for... I mean, granted, LSD is an absolute master. <laughs> but it seems hard for that deck to really beat those three decks, all three decks, if we were to... Well, yeah, I, I agree with you. That's a, that's a reasonable conclusion. But I still think outcome is the logical choice from a power standpoint and i also think it's the deck that can just win through hate more so than any deck in their gauntlet yeah it's also the deck in their gauntlet that i think is the finest tuned i agree with there's nothing wrong with their other decks but as we discussed the dredge decks are somewhat diluted and the workshop deck is a pretty stocked list but i think it has a couple of holes in its game vis-a-vis ensnaring bridge that we can abuse i think their outcome deck is the one that's the most well well well-rounded and well-tuned there is another option, though, Kevin. Yeah. Uh, do you know what I'm alluding to? Nope. Tell me. So in the first round, when we played the Hornet Queens, we dis- we decided to extend them an invitation to not <laughs> ban anything if they don't ban anything of ours. And, oh, and, right. And uh, Randy uh, transmitted that, but they declined our offer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, that gives each team six decks to pull off the shelf. Um, it's something we could consider is extending that we still need to decide if we wanted to ban what we would ban. But, uh, but I think your process of elimination is right. I mean, you know, given that they've just submitted four dredge decks, it's, it's difficult to decide. The the difference between them is between any of them. I don't think is significant enough to really make us, you know, to, to merit, well, this is the one we have to ban. Right. right? I mean, there, there are significant differences. Um, I think the one with the four ancient grudge is probably the most concerning for me, but I, I would, I would, provisionally limit it you know uh, narrow our options to the stacks uh, the workshop aggro deck and the po deck and i I agree with you i think they're i think our decks are real prepared for the workshop aggro deck um all of them in fact our po (laughs) deck has like four hercules our just guy deck has three dax you know it's like um and uh the workshop the the workshop control deck is really good in the mirror um so i um I don't think we want to go that. And, and our workshop aggro deck is excellent in the mirror. <laughs> it's really, really good in the mirror, Kevin, <laughs> with yes. our four metamorphs and stuff. Um, I uh, I think that leaves the PO deck unless we want to go back to one of the, the ancient grudge uh, dredge deck. But I think I think the additional consideration that we mentioned that LSV is is a master and he's great with it. It's their own then their only real blue deck. Um, it's the you know it's um, it's extremely well tuned. Uh, he's got recent experience with it. I think all those factors, you know, lead us to the conclusion that it's the deck to ban. So if yep. if if they make this follow that logic to a similar conclusion, what does that mean for what they're going to ban for us? So if they assume that we're going to ban their PO deck, what does that mean if you're them for what they're likely to ban? Does that change the equation for them? Honestly, I think they probably reach a similar conclusion. If I were <laughs> them, I would I would be worried about our control deck from our, our stacks deck because. It has, it's got those bridges and it's got, it's got healthy dredge hate in the board. But from their perspective, I would say, well, we can probably beat that with our lands deck it has four main deck grudges, yeah. more nature's claims out of the board. My instincts so tell me, yeah. yeah, they, they would probably say, we'll try to, we'll try to get that matchup and expect to win it. I would be more, they, they might feel the same way about their pitch dredge list against our outcome list. They might feel like this deck that has 13 counters in it and is also a fast combo deck can just be advantaged against outcome. And I'm not convinced that's correct because because Pitch Dredge is a 
a high variance controlling deck, right? <laughs> Very. <laughs> if you if you have to mull to five no or four, or all of them. Yeah, yeah, if you have to mull to five or four to find your bizarre, then your control package is is heavily diminished. That kind of thing, and also it's going to be an interesting gambit as to whether or not we know what we're playing against when they go bizarre. Go right. But the the cat can be out of the bag, so to speak, on turn zero if they ever use a serum powder, right? Part of the challenge of this whole TMBSL format is that serum powder is uh, is a bit of a leak in terms of information. <laughs> now, normally it wouldn't be that big of a leak because I need only one deck includes serum powder. In this case, it's a huge leak because if you serum powder even once and show us one card that's unique to your particular dredge list then you've given us the whole list right off the bat so if they serum powder away another shadow or a sun titan or a greater moss dog we'll know what's up (laughs) exactly (laughs) or an ancient grudge we're gonna know there are several cards in each list that just immediately give away that list that's that's interesting yeah yeah. so that's one of the things i was alluding to when i said it's fun for the audience too it's going to be doing commentary this week is going to be just an amazing blast because (laughs) it, it gives us so much to talk about layers upon layers of strategy anyway well the reason i mentioned all that is because i think that they might consider their pitch stretch list a good foil to outcome but i don't think that's a a sure thing it's okay but i don't think it's a sure thing and when you combine that with the fact that their pitch dredge list has made some concessions in terms of construction for example it only has eight dredgers in it and four of them are thugs then you might dial back a few of those percentage points and realize even this deck is going to have a hard time with outcome consistently and by the time everyone listens to this, they'll they'll know whether our discussion is moot or not, and they'll know right. the answer. But right. I thought it would be fun. It's very rare, just to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit, it's very rare that we get an opportunity to talk about this live, kind of as we're actually debating it. So, yes. I mean, Kevin and I have never been, I think, first of all, there's never been a team Vintage Super League, <laughs> and this is Kevin's second season of Vintage Super League, and, you know, you never know when you'll be playing in it, so... <laughs> kind of a cool little discussion. So that's so right, and think- we're in this, and we're in this magical mystery point between having submitted our decks but not knowing their ban, and so <laughs> this is a very unique yeah. point in time. So, you, so you think that they think we'll ban RPO, and that really doesn't change their equation very much because if they take out RPO, they well, I guess RPO is probably good against some of their dredge deck, but not the one with the pit, the pitch dredge is what you're saying. I believe their pitch list is the best matchup for them against but RPO. But everything but else is weak. Everything yeah. else is pretty soft, yeah. Yeah. So they feel like they'd probably rather de- take their chances with my Just Guy deck that has a main deck containment priest and things like that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Keep in mind, they only have a single null rod deck. They only have the one, three null rods in the sideboard of their shop deck. And right. so that's another angle for this analysis is that they might just look at their gauntlet and say, we are not. We are not loaded up against outcome. We didn't bring the null rods, and, and as only such, one of their decks also has hollow one. Only one. Yeah, and they don't even have what's the um, what's the delve creature? Yeah, Gurmag Angler. Yeah, they don't have that at all. They have two Basking Rual, which is just not going to get there against uh, the Just Guy deck. Yeah, just so, so the audience understands, the reason for that is their sideboards for their various dredge decks m- frequently include. Oh, they have a second deck that has hollow ones. Number two oh, does in the sideboard. In the sideboards, oh, yeah. but their dredge decks frequently include some of the things they're missing from the main. Some of the things they had to sacrifice. the The deck that only has two Golgari Grave Trolls, which is the lands deck, has the other two in the board, and it has four therapies in the board, for example, and two Bloodgasts. You wouldn't normally see a Bloodgast in a sideboard, for example. But this is them basically regressing toward the mean 
post sideboard with all of their lists. All of their lists are capable of shifting back toward a more traditional dredge list. The ones that only have two therapies in the main have two in the board, for example. One yeah. of them has stinkweed imps in the sideboard to bolster the dredging package, that kind of thing. So they're capable of moving more toward the center with each of their decks. By the way, the Moss Dog Dredge, which I'll call Combo Dredge, is capable of winning on turn one. Oh, interesting. Because it has Fate Stitcher, you mean? It has Breakthrough and Fate Stitcher. Oh, and, li- and it has Black Lotus and Lion's Eye Diamond. Yep. Yes. There you go. So that, That's that fun. Could, yeah, theoretically win on turn one. <laughs> <laughs> it would have to be a heck of a thing. It would, it would go through Flamekin Zealot to do it, but you're right. It's definitely possible on paper to do so. Right. I mean, and Fate Stitcher is part of the reason for that. Exactly. So they, yeah, I mean, they could bin, you know, if you, if they get a black Lotus, um, wow, you know, <laughs> but also breakthrough just is ridiculous. Yep. There's a reason all these mana spells, careful studies, faithless looting and breakthrough were played early on. They are, they produce right. powerful results. So, um, yeah, I guess that means we'll probably be banning the PO, but tune in tomorrow, tune in, oh, well, <laughs> you'll listen to it or not. You can watch us if you haven't seen it on the uh, YouTube to find out for sure. And by the way, it is it is fun to watch the VSL, even if you can't watch it live to kind of watch the video. It's fun. It's the only thing that stinks about it is that you know how much time is left in the video, so you know, like towards <laughs> the end of the video, who's likely to be you know win. But, right. Yeah. If you want to fully avoid spoilers, don't don't let the the progress bar in the video show up while you're watching. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Steve, well, we've got we, a lot of yeah. Coverage. We need to move on and talk about SCG Con now. So regarding SCG Con, Steve, do you like M&Ms? They're, they're pretty good. How about Mishra's and Montolio's? Uh, huh? Yeah. <laughs> huh? So Montolio, Andy Marketon has done it again. And that's the headline, right? But really, the, su- the subheader should be that this SCG Con was a wild success. It didn't have as great attendance as I thought it might. And I think they're, they might be exploring ways to push for greater attendance. That's, that's their, their overall goal, of course. But the event was a wild success. The attendance was great, in my eyes, for a proc- not a non-proxy vintage event. Sanctioned, nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. sanctioned vintage event. Uh, and the competition was good, and the metagame was, was basically what we expected, you know, within reason. And the top eight was quality, and the winner is the, the, the champ already. So, <laughs> well, you know, there's nothing to complain about. We want to talk about the metagame as much as we can see it because they have only published the day two deck lists. So we'll do that analysis as best we can. We want to talk about the top eight and we want to talk about our experiences throughout the events. So where should we begin, Steve? Well, let's just start by the coverage. Um, You know, Ah. obviously one of the complaints was that they only videotaped the top eight, but they actually did a magnificent job with coverage. They had, um, first of all, they, um, posted the pairings, the results, and the standings for every round, except I think round our round, the round you and I played randomly. I don't know why that one that one round oh, is missing. Oh, did they skip one? Yeah, it's, it goes from four to six. Um, oh, you're right, it does. That's wild. They posted, I hadn't noticed that. They posted all of the day two deck lists almost immediately. Mm-hmm. So I think actually the day of, which is amazing, they got 42 deck lists up. Um, they uh, also posted the day two medic, uh, breakdown. And I did a video recording of them that actually turned out really well about 10 minutes in which I very briefly um, went out, 
covered the vintage metagame. So we'll post the link to the coverage in our show notes. I just thought yep. their coverage was great, though. Um, and, you know, they had a big stream going on all weekend. So I think the most impressive thing to me about the coverage is they have like eight different tournaments. And so if you go to their their page for the coverage, you click the different event you want to look at. The Legacy Duel for Duels, the Vintage Power 9, the Invitational, blah, blah, blah. It's really remarkable. Just the logistics and sheer execution and coverage. And they're just seamless and flowed beautifully. So they it's, put, they invested, it's really a sign of the times, isn't it? It's amazing. I mean, they invested some serious resources, even though they didn't cover as much of the vintage as we would have hoped. They did a really good job with the top eight. Um, and so if you want to see the top 42 deck list, they're all up. And I actually worked with Cedric and the Star City Games team to get all the other Power 9, you know, we were doing our preview show, all the past Power 9 event deck lists up. So they're, they're all coded correctly for Power 9, so you can search for those. That's really cool. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we don't have the full deck list, as Kevin said. Um, the event overall, shifting to that, was really amazing. I mean, it felt like a it felt like an eternal weekend to me. Um, yeah. A lot of the same people, you know, a big hall, a big room. Um, <laughs> I liked Roanoke a lot. I did not like our hotel, but our <laughs> 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 Roanoke was nice. It was, uh, you know, it, I mean, there's a, it's grown tremendously since we were last there, Kevin, would you say? Yes, definitely. Yeah, nice restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um Downtown so, was fun. It was, yeah. I think I think it's it's worth doing again uh, in Roanoke. Um, you know, assuming they can, <laughs> they can. Well, they yeah. they are doing it again, right? They've announced, they announced but, the next one but, for December seven through nine. But they have not announced a Power Nine event for that. So right. So right. that's to be determined. Um, we didn't actually say this on our podcast, but Kevin, my prediction, as you remember, was that there'd be between one hundred twenty four, one hundred twenty five, and one hundred fifty players. That was the mm-hmm. range I gave, and I think your range was. Would Higher. You, I thought 150 to 175. Yeah. And the actual was 124. Remember a couple of years ago how I exactly predicted how many people were at a turtle weekend? <laughs> that, that was awesome. It was pretty wild. <laughs> I, if I had made a prediction, I think I would have said something like 126, but I don't know. I, you know, 127. <laughs> it, you know, I can't do that with the benefit of uh, hindsight, but it w- ended up being 124. So, yeah. and they were not disappointed. So that's great. Um, they did ask the question if there were proxies, how many more people would there have been? And my mm-hmm. prediction with proxies is I would have said about 175 to 180 is my prediction. Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, 50 to 100 more people is reasonable. Yeah. It, it's hard to calibrate for the notion, a, a lot of competing factors. It's hard to calibrate for the fact that the next one of these, we, we would not have predicted at the time that it would be in December, in theory. That will compete with Eternal Weekend, North America, right? Which is in November. Yeah. So you'll lose some people who don't want to travel that much in a two-month period. You'll gain some people. Yeah. Yeah. You'll lose some people due to proximity to holidays. You'll gain some people because the weather's nicer in Roanoke in December. Uh, You'll gain some people because of word of mouth of how good this event was. Right. And the combination of those factors, who knows? If you factor then in proxies, then a variance of 50 to 100 players sounds about right to me as well. Yeah, that's a good point. So the Power 9 series has been reestablished and I think is here to stay. I think we're going to see it again. And, yep. and that's just awesome news for Vintage. It really is amazing news. I mean, that is the big takeaway, that the Power 9 series <laughs> is back. It's not going to be back like it was, you know, 10 years ago, but it's back. So that's great. Um, let's turn to, uh, before we turn to our tournament reports, which were fascinating, Let's talk about, in the top eight, let's talk about um, our predictions and the metagame breakdown, and we'll do our tournament reports, and then we'll talk about the top eight last. How's that, Kevin? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so go ahead. In terms of predictions, as Steve said and I alluded to earlier, we only have day two. This is a bit of a bummer because it 
it cleans out some noise, but it also favors m- the more successful decks right. in the format. So we're not going to chalk this up as we, we can't read too much into this yeah. vis-a-vis our predictions. So we'll just read through the numbers and talk about it. The deck that we predicted the most of was Jeskai. We predicted, I said 23, Steve said 22. The actual Jeskai in day two, that is Xerox, I should say, in, in day two is 25.6. <laughs> so, so it was very, very close, close to, to what we numbers. predicted. If we yeah. hit the updated full metagame breakdown, we'll do this again in our next podcast show, but just yep. we're going to keep going. Yeah. Yep. And ju- just to be clear, when we talked about Xerox, we were predicting 20% Jeskai and 2 or 3% Delver. And that is that was the result. There was one Delver deck in day two, <laughs> and the rest, was, it was all Jeskai. Yeah. So the next most popular deck that we predicted was Workshops. I said 19, Steve, you said 16 and a half. The result was 30%. But that's day two. Day two. I, yeah. I, think there's, I think that's way off from what was actually present in the field. Yes, I agree. I mean, that's what we were stated due to the success of shops. Let me say this. I was going to say it later, but this is as good a time as any. I played on day one in eight rounds of Magic. Do you know, guess how many shop decks? Just guess. Uh, four. Zero. Really? <laughs> you didn't play shop shops decks. in day one. It was so amazing. I actually got to play Magic. No, it was... I mean, I, I am like shop cursed because in every big paper event I go to, I play almost all shops. I went to the NYSE last year. You may, and when I got second place, I think I played yep. six of eight in my six of the seven. No, six out of like the nine actual matches of I played were shops. Yeah. yeah. Um, at the vintage championship the year before, when we played Paradoxical Outcome, yeah, I played, played like, like eight. Yeah, it was like eight out of nine. <laughs> shops or, or um, Eldrazi were eight Eldrazi, out of the nine yeah. matchups. So to actually play zero shop decks on day one was like a tremendous pleasure. It was like such an amazing experience. Not saying I didn't want to play against shops because I actually did well against shops. I went undefeated against shops, but it would have been, it was just a totally different experience. So I think my guess is that shops was probably closer to me than your production. I think it was probably like right around what I, I think my guess is that it was more, more like 16 and a half percent to 19. Well, hopefully we will know at some point. Yeah. Next is outcome. I said 15, you said 18. The actual on day two was 14, so pretty <laughs> close. Yeah. Hard to know how well outcome was was converting there in that event, but it sure. was well represented. As for bug, well, this is a, a weird one, because I said six, you said five and a half. On day two, there were none. There was zero bug on day two. There are obviously bug decks there. Yeah. So, <laughs> again, w- w- hopefully we will know. Dredge, I said seven, you said, what number is that? Five. five. The actual on day two was 9.3%. I think it outperformed its metagame percentage because I didn't see, I saw like one dredge deck the whole day, day one. <laughs> yeah, it, I'm with you. I think it was a tiny I, percentage. I think I only saw like the, the, the handful of dredge players that were actually in day two when I was in during day one. I wouldn't be surprised. It was really bizarre. I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, really? It was, b- yeah. <laughs> it was bizarre. I uh-huh. wouldn't be surprised. It was really bizarre. I wouldn't be surprised if there were all the dredge decks made day two, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm that's serious. definitely a possibility. <laughs> Next is Eldrazi. I said 7 to 8%. I guess I just never nailed myself down on a number. You said no. 3.75%. Well, the, we, the whole funny. discussion for this was, well, that's true. But our discussion here was that I was making the point that despite this being paper, that the mm-hmm. circumstances of the event being a, t- a two-day tournament and the high cost of entry would dissuade people who would just try and roll in and win a big prize. So. Yes. 
the actual on day two was 2.3%. And I did not see much Eldrazi in day one at all. I heard about one <laughs> or two people on it, I, but... I played White Eldrazi in day one. I faced yeah. it. Next is Oath. I said 10, you said 11. The actual on day two, 4.7%. Really soft showing for Oath. Yeah. And then for Big Blue, we both said 5% and the day two was 4.7%. So <laughs> it was basically spot on. <laughs> Yeah, so the, the big takeaways are that Shops was by far the, the most and uh, best performing decks in terms of conversion, but we don't know the actual rate. Yeah. But it, it dominated day two, and then it dominated the top eight. Right. Xerox showed up in about the amount we expected. Similarly, Outcome, uh, Dredge, and Eldrazi showed up in about the amounts that we projected one of the two of us. A, a week showing for Oath with only 4.7% on day two, which is surprising given the predominance of shops. You know, it would be kind of silly, I think, to hold off on our top eight discussion. So let's talk about the top eight decks now. Sure, sure, sure. So the top eight, archetype-wise, four workshops. Again. <laughs> two, two outcome, one Jeskai, and one Grixis. You now, know, when, when I saw this, this top eight, Kevin, and we'll get into specific, I felt really good about that article I wrote in May about my suggestions for the vintage restricted list. You might remember that I had suggested they restrict Arcbound Ravager, um, unrestrict, um, was the lands card that I wanted? Fast, not fast bond. Uh, was it? No, fast bond. Unrestrict fast bond, mm-hmm. um, unrestrict windfall, and I think there was one other change. Those changes that I recommended are really consonant with this topic. I mean, we have <laughs> zero combo decks, right? And so, like, having windfall. Well, wind- depending on how you categorize outcome. Yeah, these, these were more, I mean, anyway, yeah, these, <laughs> these were traditional out- big blue decks, in my opinion. But, well, um, one, one of the two outcome decks does have a tendrils in it, just for the sake of clarity. I know. <laughs> but um, anyway, so I think, um, anyway, just keep going. I just wanted to interject that, that I think that my, my, my re- recommendations are really consistent. Well, I don't know where to begin with parsing this top eight. I mean, obviously, shops converted from day one to day two at a fantastic rate, and then it converted from... Even more. Let's just say yeah, 20 to 30 two. to 50% of the conversion. <laughs> yeah. Something like that, yes. And it's not like it was a coincidence of rankings or anything either, because if you look at 9 through 16, it goes Oath, Mentor, Delver, Shops, Eldrazi, Shops, Mentor, <laughs> and then a Rogue Mardu deck by Josh Mekas. Which I consider an Eldrazi deck, but yeah. Yeah, which is, which is an Eldrazi deck, yeah. It's called Mardu Planeswalkers <laughs> here, but it has Thought Not Seer and, um, and Reality Smasher, I think. Right. Wait, hold on. I don't have to think. I can just open it. It has Thought Not Seer. Oh, it doesn't have Reality Smasher. Just Thought Not Seer. But it's it's a it's an unusual deck. So there's in the in the second eight, <laughs> the rest of the top sixteen, there's two other shop decks and one point five other Eldrazi decks too. So if you look at top sixteen, it's still kind of half ancient tomb decks. And then the rest of the top sixteen fills in the things that were missing from the top eight. There's an oath deck. And two more mentor decks, and then Delver. Yeah. Um, so the the I, I really don't know what to say. This feels just well, a lot like Champs last year. It's it's. I actually think it's very different than Champs. It feels way more to me like the NYSE last year. Remember yeah, okay. the NYSE last year was four Shops and four mentor decks. That was literally yeah. what it was. Well, the the vintage Champs last year was four was five Shops and three Oath. I think yeah. the the difference here is the Oath this time got stuck on tiebreakers in ninth place. It was mm-hmm. a very good Oath deck, and I'll talk about that later. 
Um, I just feel like it's a, replica, a replication of the NYSE. The difference is the finals look more like vintage champs because it was a pair of workshop decks. So you have this, yep. like, this cleavage, right, of four shops and four blue decks, and the blue decks just got knocked out in the semi and quarter final. So you and you had a, a, a good, uh, you know, in the top nine, there was a, the whole pie of blue was represented. The pie, the, the trivial pursuit piece of pie was actually <laughs> represented because you had Outcome, Just Guy, Grixis, and oh, so all the blue decks were there in, in the top nine. They just didn't make it. So, right. And Outcome was the best performing one in terms of this, although there was another Just Guy deck at 10th place. So um, if you look, if you extend it down to 10, you had. Um, uh, uh, six, six uh, blue decks in the top ten, um, and uh, and it's almost a perfect, you know, snapshot. And just so that people are clear on the math, when with forty three decks in day two, the oath deck at four point seven percent is two oath decks. Just so we know, got it. There's one in ninth place, and yeah, then there's only one mentioned. other oath deck in day two. Yeah, as compared to say thirteen shop decks and eleven Jeskai decks. Well, I think the thing that we learned from Vintage Champs last year was that the only deck that could blue deck that could compete could compete with those shops deck at that time was the were the Oath deck, yeah. and the Oath decks did it. And this time, these other decks competed <laughs> in the sense that they all got crushed <laughs> by shops in the top eight anyway. And one of the you know there's there's a narrative. The narrative there's different ways to parse this or you know embed them into a narrative. But one of the narratives was that since Vintage Championships, the metagame has adjusted and adjusted in a way that was able to better attack. Uh, shops and in particular the change was paradoxical outcome the paradoxical outcomes decks began using a lot of purples and then were began yep. to be able to compete with shop so it makes sense that outcome is the most representative of the blue decks here but it also raises the question is paradoxical outcome actually favored against shops what happened was it there's two possibilities basically either the shop decks adjusted to paradoxical outcome and now shops are back on top or this was kind of you know, just a fluke and shops won despite being, you know, not favored against outcome. It's hard to know which of those stories will are well, the truth, but we'll find out. I can tell you one thing. Champs did not feature a lot of null rod in the shops decks. And Montolio's yeah. winning list has three null rods in the, in the sideboard. sideboard. Yeah. That is definitely an impact on that matchup. <laughs> yeah. So shops are back on top, Kevin? Well, I think that this top eight is is looks like it might be lopsided but honestly the whole metagame was pretty healthy i think if you if you're one of the people who likes to combine say force of will decks then the force of will decks are still the dominant part of the metagame except because, they didn't even make the finals <laughs> <laughs> well i mean that's a that's a, that can be a little results oriented right sure. it has to do with pairings for one like the the way that the the top eight played out the um there were Two shop decks in. Let me see who else was on shops. Was Christopher Plug on shops? Sorry, I'm going to delete this. Yep. Oh, one of the ways that the pairings worked out in the top eight was just that there were three shop decks in one side of the bracket and only one in the other. And so that what that means is that two of the blue decks necessarily had to necessarily had to uh, knock themselves out. One of the one of the blue decks <laughs> in the quarterfinals. So the semifinals included two shops and two blue decks. It was kind of a fifty fifty deal at that point, but. The two shop decks happen to win both of those matchups. Right. And you can watch the videos. Yeah, exactly. And you can watch those videos. And it's not like those weren't complete drubbings. I mean, if you watch Andy Markleton versus Stephen Quinn, game one there was quite close. If Stephen Stephen was dead on board and resolved an outcome for four and uh, and just didn't quite get there, even though he, he, he had some options, he had some plays. 
So it's not like I, these were these were knockdown drag out performances by shops. These were some close matches. Well, there's certainly room for quite a bit of interpretation, right? It depends on how you put <laughs> yep. these data points into a larger narrative or story. Yep. My reading is that I think the metagame is a lot more open. And the reason it's opened up is because of the presence of paradoxical outcome. I think that is actually what's happened. And the shop decks have now adjusted. And I think it's a fairly balanced metagame. But I think the shop decks are based on this result and based upon my view of how this result came about. Mm-hmm. And let me say what that means. It, um, I think that the vintage challenges are important and they're valuable. But I think people bring their best weapons to events like this. And I think if you're like Andy Markenton, you bring your most fine-tuned deck and you bring your your full game to this in a way that you're you're less committed to an event challenge. So I think that people are trying to understand that I actually think that these bigger paper events, especially where you have it doesn't to me it's less about the number of players than is who's actually in attendance. Is Andy Markenton there? If he is, it gives it gives the like it's a real test of the shop deck, you know? And you mm-hmm. have players like Brian DeMars who made top eight. And you know that's a that's a test. And so I think the fact that, that that this top eight was half shops, and when everyone knew shops was going to be the most popular deck, and it had won the vintage championship, I think it means it's probably still the best deck. I don't know if it's dominant, but I think it's still the best deck. And I think, that, well, and the that's... only way I will I will be pushed off of that view is if we get <laughs> to the vintage championship at Eternal Weekend, we have 400, 500 players, and if it gets like one or two in the top eight, then I will be dissuaded from that. But if it's like half the top eight again. I think it's going to be hard not to do anything about it, honestly. Well, uh, so you, you talked about a lot of things there. Is Shop still the best deck? Yeah, I think that's demonstrably true. I think if you look at the data recently, it's still the best performing deck in terms of things like um, can, you know match win percentage. And I also think that it is a very good choice for longer events like this 13 rounds of Swiss because it has become so homogenous that it's quite consistent. And if you have a little bit of practice and you're good at mulliganing and and uh, don't get overtired from playing vintage for too long, then it's a good choice. I'd like to back up though, because I was doing a bit of analysis while you were speaking there and 13 out of the 16 shop decks that made day two had access to Null Rod. Yeah. That, to your point about the, the comings and goings of the metagame and the power of outcome, that's a major shift. Right. That is that's a continental shift from where we were a year ago, and yeah. I think that that has made a difference. I think that outcome well, kind of briefly had an advantage in that matchup, but the shop decks evolved, and now there's a there's still a kind but, of an arms race, right? Nolrod Kevin, is not good in the shop mirror, but Kevin, <laughs> but it still can be a role player. Well, I, I don't think I think you're kind of putting it into a linear narrative where it's more of an oscillating narrative. I mean, let's remember what our predictions were for Vintage Championship. Remember the Vintage Challenges right before last year's North American Vintage Championship had paradoxical outcome at like 20, 25% of the Vintage of Top 8. And it was like, it was a huge surge of paradoxical outcome. Yep. And then there was a countervailing surge of Null Rod. And then paradoxical, right? It, it crested before Vintage Championship and the wave collapsed at Vintage Championship. Remember, it was like 5% of the decks. Yeah. And that was because Null Rod surged. So, I don't think that Nolrod is, I think Nolrod is playing a part in what's happening, but I think there's a, I don't think like Nolrod is keeping Paradoxical off the map right now. And I don't, and I think it's been, I think it's been well represented in the past. And by Nolrod, I mean Stony Silence and Nolrod. Well, but that didn't begin at Champs last year, right? That That's the point I was trying to make, was that the, the dominant shop archetype 
or the shop, the dominant shop construction at champs last year did not, did not have, have no I, I totally agree with that. But what I'm saying yeah. is the rest of the metagame did. <laughs> the well, rest of the metagame was really loaded to bear with null rod at that. I mean, in that tournament, it was every all the Jeskai okay. decks had multiple Stony Islands, including mine. Um, yeah, that's that's fair. That was that was still a standard at that time. But um, I still think that when you talk about Jeskai bringing in. You know, just guy main decking a Stony Silence, for example, versus all of these shop decks having access to three or four null rods post sideboard. Those two things have disproportionate effects on the performance of outcome. I believe that three to four null rods becoming standard in shops, which is the best performing deck in the format, has an outsized impact as compared to the fact that, yes, Mentor runs one main and maybe another one in the sideboard. And at shops last, sorry, at champs last year, the best performing Jeskai deck was Solly in tenth place, and he didn't even have Stony Silence. <laughs> so I don't think I, I think that what you're saying is definitely observably true in terms of the fact that Stony Silence is a standard in the metagame. I think that the path, sorry, the um, the phenomenon that we're observing here in this event is a watershed moment. I think this is a this is a fulcrum on which workshops has changed. And it speaks to what you said earlier about how it is oscillating. Outcome does <laughs> very wildly, especially in the challenges and the, and the leagues and such. But in terms of the sanctioned vintage metagame, I think this is a turning point. And I think we're setting ourselves up for North American Vintage Champs in November for this to be the standard workshop list. And that gives Outcome a different flavor and a different place in the metagame. Fair enough. Well, let's turn to our tournament reports. How's that sound? All right. Well, it sounds a lot better for you than it does for me. Well, let's hear from you first. Uh, 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 How how does that sound? Do you want to start or do you want me to? No, that's fine. I'll go first since yours is going to be more bombastic and and filled with more magic. So I unfortunately did not make day two of this event. And I went four and four on day one. And I did not keep fantastic notes on how games actually went. But I'll talk through my rounds. Round one. Oh, I'm sorry. I played Just Guy Mentor. With with a whole bunch of Snapcaster mages, I don't I don't have the four that Solly has, but I had three. So first ra- first round I played Kiet on Grixis Thieves and lost O two. And of note, he played and resolved Duretti in game one, which is a card that I love, of course, as you many of you know. And Duretti gives you such inevitability against the <laughs> Jeskai decks. It's really it's it's comically bad for those Jeskai decks, especially ones like mine that are relying on Snapcasters and Lightning Bolts to, to clear the way. I just It's just real difficult to get one past Duretti. My strategy involved trying to resolve other, other Planeswalkers, and I, uh, and I almost worked because I have Dak and Jace, the Mind Sculptor, in this list. But it was one of those situations where I jockeyed for a certain position, and, and he just had like the, the better follow-up in each case. So I lost that 102. Round two, I played against Oath with, against Jamie and won two to one. We had some good back and forth, and he drew an incredibly reactive hand in game three mm. that was just overloaded with mana and ways to fight Cage, and that's not good when you're trying to play a control mirror. So he just got a little unlucky there. At the end of the game, the end of the game, he played his sixth mana source and passed a turn without casting Inferno Titan, which is the thing I thought he was building up to the whole time. <laughs> he didn't have it. <laughs> and when he didn't have it, I went, oh, okay, I guess I just win. And he's like, yeah, he showed me his hand at the end. It was garbage. 
So I'm one and one there. Round three, I am, I believe, contractually obligated to play against Namtran in every vintage <laughs> event I play in. Because I played two vintage events this weekend, and he and I played him in both of them. And he and I always get paired at the, the Team Serious Opens and, and Invitationals. So anyway, I played against Nam. He was on two-card Monty, and I won two to one because, and I think it's to his disadvantage that I am one of those people in this world who knows how to play against two-card Monty better than most, given that I live in two-card Michigan. <laughs> so I'm two and one at this point. Round four, I played against Joseph Dreyer, who was uh, very pleasant to meet and play against. Thanks, Joseph. He's on dredge, and I win this one two to one despite the fact that I was very light on dredge hate, but I still kept my containment priests, and he effectively drew no answers to them. What do you mean by he, keep them? I'm, oh, I, I mean, I didn't, pl- I, didn't, I didn't remove them from my sideboard, but I didn't have rest oh, in see. peace in my sideboard. Got it. Um, so anyway, I drew containment priests in games two and three and resolved them, and he had the the somewhat typical hollow one Gurmag angler kind of package. And that was just not that difficult for me to overcome because my priests survived, right? He didn't have any kind of turn one, double hollow one shenanigans to beat me. And how did I was you overcome to, it? Was it plows? Um, well, I was not on plows. I was on lightning bolts. So it was a combination of Dak Faden and Snapcaster plus lightning bolts. And Dak Faden stealing hollow one. Hollow yes. One. Okay. And then in game three, I brought in my one gilded Drake, and I traded that for his Gurmag Angler. You had wait a second. <laughs> Hold on a second. You had gilded yep. Drake. Yes, I put one gilded Drake in my sideboard. <laughs> How did I not know this? I, <laughs> I stayed I with you. you. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I have one gilded Drake in my sideboard as wow, a, as a kind of a fun of yeah. against <laughs> Oath and Dredge. <laughs> because I wanted something that was good against Oath when you're behind. I wanted to be able to take an Inferno Titan or, I like or a, it. I like it a lot. A, gl- a Brand. A gl- yeah, the Glistle Brand's pretty br- beating. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I took his Gurmag Angler, and it was it was enjoyable for me because I set that play up multiple turns in advance. I was just holding that Guild Drake, thinking his, his best out here, aside from removing my priest, which he just did not have the means to do either of these games. His best out was Gurmag Angler because I couldn't effectively block it. Yeah, and without plows, it's hard to deal with Gurmag Angler. Really yes, is. I agree. I, I, when you said Dak at first, I was like, you know, there's there is another way to steal things with Dak, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> a bit more. No, work. I didn't get that far. So at this point, I'm three and one, going into round five, and I get paired than none other than Stephen Menendian. <laughs> and <laughs> so we can talk about this match. match. Yeah, that's right. It was pretty funny. Um, we don't really need to talk much about this match because it was it had a lot of interesting things. But ultimately, it was library on the draw in game one, and then I mulled to five in game two. Game one was long and interesting, and there, there's plenty to learn from it, I think. But ultimately, it was library on the draw. And the only reason that you didn't win faster is just because your mentor was on the bottom of your deck. Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah. Well, actually. And so, yeah. I mean, you won the game, but you only had like six cards left in your library, you which com- is a testament to library. You completely buried the lead there, Kevin. Uh <laughs> we actually what? sat down to play, shuffled up, and then oh. we got deck check. Yeah. And the deck check took like 15 minutes because, <laughs> I'll let you explain. Well, my deck, for those of you who know me or have seen me on camera, is, is almost fully altered at this point. And so it took a long time for the judges to, to <laughs> check my deck. And there were no issues, but I could tell because I could see them doing it from where we were sitting. I could tell that they were being very diligent and double-checking to make sure none of my cards were marked. 
Right. And I have intentionally purchased the kind of sleeves, Dragon Shield mats that have extra space on the top so you can't see the top edges of my cards. If you could see the top edges of my cards, my deck would be marked because they have painted edges in some cases. So I know they were looking out for that. Unfortunately, they didn't find anything wrong. But, but that 15 minutes actually tremendously impacted our match because the first game we played, as you said, was super long. And what actually happened yeah, was I had like library, but you had like turn one or turn two deck. And you yeah. were like cycling madly through your deck, but you couldn't actually get card advantage. You were just getting card quality. And right. what happened was, as you said, because what actually happened was you ultimated deck. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this dramatically impacted my ability to win because I couldn't actually go for the win until two conditions were met. Number one, I had to actually find the mentor, which, as you said, after drawing almost my entire deck, I couldn't find it. And yep. number two, I had to probe you. So I also had to find Pietaxian probe and resolve it because I needed to know that you weren't holding like a bunch of pyroblasts. So what yep. I actually had to do was build a hand that had. Oh, and by the way, you just you killed my um, thing in the ice after I got you to like three life. So yep. that was the other thing. I, I did flip thing in the ice, but you you killed it. And the thing that I had to contend with was not that I couldn't beat you once I found the mentor, but that once I found the mentor, I then had to ensure that you weren't able to steal it immediately without me getting a critical mass of tokens in response, right. so that and then be able to kill the mentor itself. <laughs> yep. So that's what I had to do. And accomplishing all of that took a very long time, and my operations were absurdly complicated because I had <laughs> to contend. I mean, you were actually, because you were dacking so frequently, I had to battle with you on the stack, battle with you in terms of card advantage, maintain my card advantage. But then I had to weave the strategic rope path that allowed me to find the mentor, find the Cataxian probe, and build a hand that once I found the found the mentor, because I actually wasn't planning for probe, I was planning, I need to actually get mentor and play a string of instant. So mm-hmm. I had, I got gush, brainstorm, I had to get all those cards ready. And then I found the probe and I probed you and saw you had nothing in your hand and I could just go <laughs> for it. But I couldn't do that until I had done one of the other things. So it was a a logistically very challenging game to play, even though I had a huge advantage advantage the whole game. Mm-hmm. The other thing that was tricky is that once we ended, because that game took so long, there was like enormous pressure around us because everyone was watching. Like, you know, and so like because of the deck check, we were like yep. the game one ended like probably right around when time was called. We never actually went to turn because we had such a big time extension and I won game two fairly quickly. Yep. But but um, anyway, that was very, very stressful for me. I was like very flustered because because <laughs> of your DAC ultimate and my yep. limited number of win condition. So And DAC ultimate would normally have would normally be uh, a, a strong path to victory, but I had to sacrifice DAC to do it because I was concerned about DAC getting pyroblasted yes. with six, with seven counters, right? Yeah. And what that meant was I was basically spent on resources. I was just playing off the top. And that was just not good enough because your library was still active. Right. If I had gotten super lucky I, in, in pulling a series of pyroblasts, then that would have been, the game would have had a kind of a fiery conclusion. Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> but, it would, I mean, it came down I basically to, I just need to get like three points of damage. Yeah. yeah. That was the thing. But then if I plow my own mentor, because you steal it, then I have to get more. So I needed like two tokens. Is what I yeah. needed. I, I wasn't going to live off of one token. And that's yeah. tricky. So if you have Pyroblast with that on the stack, I need to be able to generate tokens. And there aren't just a lot of instants, right? So well, they've that, all been restricted. Yeah, that's really what I was dealing with there. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so it was interesting from an analytical standpoint, but not quite so much from a from a competition standpoint. Well, I also think it was kind of like, you know, frustrating for you because like you 
you don't get to see my hand, so you don't see everything that I'm doing. And you're just <laughs> sitting there like with pretty pretty obvious plays in the sense that like you're just dacking and like just mm-hmm. getting to dac ultimate and you don't really have a ton of options. Whereas like each turn was a cornucopia of options for me. And I <laughs> like I had like a million different options where I'm like, okay, do I do A, B, or C? And if I do A, how does that get me closer to this plan of mentor with multiple instants? <laughs> you know? So so anyway, right. it was like your game, your experience of the game was like nothing compared to my experience so what we played yep. the same game but it was not it was not even close to the same experience yeah there was definitely an operational imbalance that game <laughs> so anyway at that point i am three and two played against shops and win two to one not not much special there you'll note that this is the first time i've played against shop aggro even though nam has uh shops in his right. two-card monty deck so I'm four and two going into the last two rounds. I play against jo- Josh Mekis, who's on aforementioned Mardu Planeswalker Eldrazi deck, and I lose two to one. And he and I were discussing it because that this match was very, very weird. Picture <laughs> this: you're 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 four and two, and you sit down. You know you're on the cusp of playing for day two at a large sanctioned vintage event. Your opponent goes sulfurous springs. Death right, shaman. <laughs> just, but just it's also an experienced player, though. Yes, I I knew Josh, and, and I knew he, he was no joke. And, yeah, <laughs> and he's and he's four and two at this point, so I know he's not playing some just completely foolish deck. But <laughs> he plays Sulfur Springs Death Right Shaman, and I thought I don't know what you're doing. I better mental misstep this when <laughs> it was correct, and we played for a couple more turns. At which point he plays, he he went from two to four mana. That was part of what got me in game one is he just goes ancient tomb thought not seer and i'm i'm looking at my hand i th- oh okay that resolves and, takes, yeah. Yeah. and then the next turn he goes thought not seer and i'm like <laughs> oh okay this is where i got maximally punished for my playing bolts instead, instead of plows. plows in my list yes and so he wins that game because the thought not seer just ran roughshod over me i win game two and then in game three he played like a completely different deck <laughs> Game three, he's on the play, and he goes, Lotus Land Double Bob. Wow. <laughs> After his Death Rite Double Thought Knot game one and a whole bunch of Planeswalkers in game two, he basically bought a different deck every every game of this round. <laughs> he played Duretti. He played, uh, he play, yeah, he had Duretti. the uh, anti-white red creature? Yeah, he had Sulfur, sulfur Elemental. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was, just, I was just completely on the back foot the whole time, even though I managed to win a game. Game three, he has double Bob, and I have Lightning Bolt for one of them on, on turn one, but I never removed the second one, and it's just too much card advantage. I just yeah. I just couldn't do it. Couldn't muster a win over a Dark Confidant. So anyway, I lose there. I'm four and three. <laughs> Round eight, I play against Tyler on Outcome, and I lose quickly 0-2. And this was a pretty disheartening loss because I really like the Outcome matchup for my deck and Jeskai in general yeah. at the moment. And he, it was just one of those situations where we jockey for position, we fight over resources, and then he rolls, he resolves dig through time. You know, we jockey for position. The last card in his hand is is paradoxical outcome, that kind of thing. I it, I probably need to get better at playing this kind of match because I think overall I'm just too aggressive, and I need to be more controlling in the role. Yeah. Yes, I believe that I need to be even more controlling, and I think I just find opportunities and just take them. And and when you get punished, you get maximally punished, and that's where I, that's where I ended up here. That's four and four for me, and not making day two. Rough beats, but I mean, it didn't help yeah. that we got paired either. So yeah, that's true. One of us, as you said at the start of the match, you said the w- the winner of this one is very well positioned, and the loser is going to have a tough time. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. 
All right. In that case, Steve, let's hear about your tournament experience. Well, there are three things I want to put. Let me just preface by saying there are three interesting things that I want to talk about at length. So I'm going to move through my rounds a little quickly to get to those and we can have a conversation <laughs> about the interesting things that happen. All right. Around one, I played against Albert Yee, who was a really nice guy and seemed disappointed to be playing me round one. But he had Mox Land Orch- uh, Orchard Mox Oath in both games. Uh, and wow. I won the match. And on turn one, and I and I won the match. Um, <laughs> he would in the first in the first game. I played a uh, uh, a preordain on turn one, which he misstepped, and my hand was like nothing but like a mentor and mana. And, and he huh. goes mox orchard oath, and I literally draw my one fragmentize off the top of my deck. <laughs> and I play it. So and then I just Must. go off to the races. Actually, I played mentor, and he forced it. But on turn four, I played Strip Mine and Treasure Cruise and, and, and Resolve, and I just pulled way ahead. Um, okay. So that was pretty funny. Uh, in game two, he goes Orchard Oath again, but I have a turn one Ancestral Recall into Black Lotus into Time Walk Brainstorm. Untap, untap, Fragmentize with Pyroblast Backup, and turn three, Gush into Dig Through Time. Good yeah, dig grief. Through time. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's the karma for him getting turn one Orchard Oath both games. No kidding. <laughs> Um, in game in round two, I played against Micah Greenbaum, who I think was playing a PO deck. He had Arayo. I don't have many notes about this because he opened, he mulligans the six and he goes, library top on the play. <laughs> and Ouch. He, I don't think he got another like mana source. Um, I played turn one thing of the ice and I flipped it. I double pyroblast both of them and I pyroblasted his Arayo and his turn two paradoxical outcome deck. So, um, and then I quickly flipped thing in the ice and killed him. I have no notes from game two, but I, I think it, I think the standing show was a 2-0, so I won mm-hmm. quickly. Game th- around three, I played against Kevin Brenneman, who got ninth with O. This was a beating, and he was very good. I mean, I was harping incessantly before the tournament about, I'm concerned about Oath, I'm concerned about Oath. Remember that, Kevin? Yes, and, I do. And specifically, I was concerned about Carnage Tyrant. Well, this was the guy who brought it. So the interesting <laughs> thing... too bad. <laughs> yeah. The, the interesting thing I, I want to make, make about this Oath matchup was... Um, this is not one of the things I want to talk a lot about, but um, he had he got early oath and orchard, and he oathed up creatures, and it's always a challenge. Like, how do you handle that situation if you're like a heavy plow deck? I have three main deck plows and lots of ways to recur them. Um, I and it's like so. On the one hand, if they oath a creature and they and you plow one of them and they oath the second one, you're really hoping that they like get close to deck, right? Like you sure. want it to be near the bottom. Um, he oathed up a, a Gisela or a Gisela, and I plowed it. And he oathed up a Gristlebrand, which was like the next card, which I was really disappointed about. Like it was literally the top <laughs> card of his library. Yep. But I somehow got into a position where I was, because I think I had done some damage to him, that I was able to plow his Gristlebrand. Wow. That's hard to do. It is hard to do. So it was this really weird game where... I could like stave off Inferno Titan somehow and like I could maybe count, you know, I don't know what happened, but he got, he got Inferno Titan. I might have been able to position myself to plow the third Inferno Titan as well, then see what happens. But he actually got me. I don't remember the specifics. I would love to like, that's a game I would love to have played on Magic Online because then I could review it, like diagram it and see exactly how it played out. But Mm -hmm. it's interesting to like decide, like, do I scoop, especially in time rounds, you know, like, do you scoop, do you, um, you know, you know, do you play it out to see if you can deck them, to see if I can remove all these creatures? And these, like, oath decks are designed, like, if you can remove the Gristlebrand, you can actually potentially plow the remaining creature, you know? But, like, anyway, he, he, it was just, I was really frustrated after I plowed Gis- Gisela, 
that he like the next card he oath was literally Gristlebrand. Mm-hmm. Um, game one was not a game two was not a game because I had a one land hand with Brainstorm and the heuristic with one land hand and Brainstorm as you probably remember Kevin is you can't play it on turn one. Right. You actually you wait for another draw and then you play it and that's what I did. Unfortunately, I locked myself. Yeah. So that was the entire game. He yep. did have Carnage Tyrant, and he showed it to me at the end of the game. He didn't need to play it because he overran me. Yeah. Um, but what I do want to talk about is that that evening we had dinner with the mighty Montolio and a bunch of guys. It was a great <laughs> time. But I, I was talking with Ryan Eberhardt, the Dia fan, and he, I was asking him what his oath plan was. And his oath plan, in my opinion, is not an oath plan. It's like, he's <laughs> like, I sideboard in like like two fragmentized, and that's basically it. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah wait a second here, wait a second, um, that doesn't win. And he's like, well, I, I'm undefeated against Oath, except against Brian Kelly, who I can't. I'm like, so what does that mean? <laughs> right? Like, if you're, if you're like, oh, and 10 against Brian Kelly and 20 against everything, what is your actual record against Oath? <laughs> um, I, I could be persuaded that, like, a simpler plan might be better. You don't want to go too heavy, and I think you need plows against Oath. Yep. Um, but Carnage Tyrant is really hard to beat. One of the reasons I had Thing in the Ice is because of Carnage Tyrant. Uh, I guess you could steal Carnage Tyrant. Can you steal Carnage Tyrant with, with Gilded Drake? Uh, no, because you have it's, to target. It's not a target? I thought it's target player chooses the creature they control. Uh, okay. No, the, the, the Drake targets the creature. Got it. It's not like Diabolic Edict in that respect. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's a challenge, and uh, I didn't even have to face it to lose. So I, I was, you know, I felt good about that loss because I thought, number one, Kevin was a very good player. Um, we had a really interesting, long, interesting game one. I thought he played like like if if i i mean i played a lot of against brian kelly online obviously and that's what it kind of felt like like he was in complete command uh, he knew what he was doing he took advantage of his advantages maximized his advantages to his benefit mm-hmm. and ran me over <laughs> uh <laughs> round four i played philip kwan and uh I'm, I'm not gonna tell you what he played just yet because in the first game he played a eldrazi temple uh, or an eye of Ugin. it was an eldrazi temple and i strip mined it and then I played a bunch of mana, and I played like Ancestral, uh, Jace Vrinch Prodigy, replayed Ancestral. He played two Thought, Se- Thought Not Seers, eventually, and I plowed hmm. both of them. And then I like played Dak and a bunch of stuff, and then like I, I got like, I didn't actually find the Mentor, but I had like Dak Ultimated, and I had like Jace like climbing very close to Ultimate, and he scooped. Yeah. Um, here's what's interesting. I thought he was playing Tribal Eldrazi, but in game two, he opens with Plane. Huh, okay. So that he was very deliberate. I mean, he was obviously mana screwed in game one, but um, I was lucky that I, because I cyborged as if I was playing against Tribal Eldrazi and it ended up being white, which is a very different game plan. Mm-hmm. Um, I had library though. Um, my opening hand was library, Tundra, Strip, and Ancestral, JVP, and Thing of the Ice. What do you play on the draw <laughs> if you open with library, Strip, Tundra, What in it with Ancestral? What is your turn one play? Wow. <laughs> I don't That's even tough. know what. That's real tough. So it has everything to do with what they play. Do you remember what he did Plane. on his first turn? Planes go. <laughs> oh, planes go? Yeah, that's oh, what I'm saying. In geez. game two, he just uh, th- played planes. <laughs> that's real rough. I think I, I just lead with Tundra because Ancestral gets you more burst card advantage. If he strips, then Ancestral is insulating you against the the loss of colored mana, right? Yes. You're going to see yes. five, five and then well, I can four other cards. Library. Yeah. yeah, and if you don't get any of that, then you've got library as a backup plan. So I, I like leading with Tundra. It, it gets Ancestral resolved, and it maximally positions you to be able to do things like Thing in the Ice plus strip them next turn if you find a Mox, things like that. 
your logic is exactly what I did. I played yeah. the Tundra because I wanted it to draw a wasteland so the library would go active. Yeah. Um, and I just I just ran him over. I played Thing in the Ice. It flipped really soon, and I killed him very quickly. Yeah, Thing in the Ice is good like that. Did he play any creatures? <laughs> I think he played Athalia, which I plowed. But by the time he played Thalia, I had played, and he probably played some other things, but like it was way too late yeah. when he played other things. I mean, like I had played, I think I had played Ancestral and replayed Ancestral uh, and like basically <laughs> everything by the time he, yeah, he was able to do anything. Yeah. Okay. Um, gotcha. Round five, I played against you. So at this point I'm four and one. Mm-hmm. Round six, I played against Tyler Thibodeau, who I don't remember what he was playing, but I think it was a PO deck and I won 2-0. Round seven, I played against Josh Lalo, who made top eight. It was a mirror match. Um, I remember, so I won game one, and it was a very good long game one that I just eked out my advantage. Game two, I had a huge advantage, but I let it somehow slip away from me, and he won. I don't (laughs) remember how that happened. (laughs) But I remember there was like a fateful decision I made, and I think it was the wrong decision. I went all in on something, and then like, oh, I remember what happened. (laughs) We both expended ourselves. I had like five cards in my hand. He had like one card in his hand. I had like two counter spells. Um... I force of will the brainstorm that he played. No, I played brainstorm. My hand was five cards, but my brain, I had like force. Let's say it was like force misstep brainstorm and like mox land land in hand, maybe yeah. six cards. I played brainstorm. All I wanted to do was get good cards and shuffle away the dead cards. Naturally. He countered it. He countered it. I used force on the counter and my brainstorm like was bad despite being late game. <laughs> yeah. It was bad in game two. And he topped He's no cards in his hand. Okay, he had like one card in his hand. It was a mana drain on my brainstorm, and I forced it. Guess what he draws? Is no cards in his hand. Guess what he draws? I, I I don't know a good card, a restricted card. Ancestral recall. Okay, and then he ancestrals into treasure cruise. Yeah, and time and, and treasure cruises into time walk. So yep. I lost that game. It was re- Paul Mastrano was watching that game. It was really and really crazy because like <laughs> I was so far ahead in game two after battling heavily, and then that happened. Um, and then in game three, I I won. So. Um, I, I, it was not close <laughs> round. So, so far I played two of the play, uh, I guess one player who's made top eight, um, and one who got ninth. ninth. Yeah. Round eight, I played against Mar- Nathan Marska who did make top eight. And this was probably the most demoralizing match of not just the day, but the entire weekend. Super nice guy, but exceptionally green. Yeah. Um, he told me he started playing magic with dragons of Tarkir and this was his first or second vintage tournament. Nice. Um, in game one, he played Wheel of Fortune, and I drew insane, and he wasn't able to do anything. And he played like Voltaic Key, and I countered the Time Vaulters. He played. And I just went way ahead after he did that. Yeah. And I won. He scooped after I like was like ultimate like I Dak and little Jace flipped over and everything. <laughs> so I thought he was playing Paradoxical Outcome because I saw Voltaic Key and Mana Crypt and stuff like that. And um, it turns out he was playing Grixis Thieves. Mm-hmm. And so I I lost game two specifically because I sideboarded incorrectly. Yeah, you know I thought he was playing a totally different deck, <laughs> and um, he got me. I don't remember. I think he got me with a notion thief or something. I don't know. It, it couldn't have been notion thief. It was something very frustrating that he got me with. And I thought it was. I just. I think. Oh, I re- I remember exactly what happened in game two, Kevin. This just <laughs> ah, this kills me. This kills me. <laughs> he goes. He goes on turn one. Um, Black Lotus in game two. So I won game one. He goes Black Lotus land go. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I have the option of playing Library of Alexandria or land Ancestral Recall or 
No, wait. It wasn't Land Ancestral Recall. It was... Oh, I know what it was. It was Land Mox... I had Ancestral Recall in my hand, but I could go Land Mox Stony Silence. Yeah. Instead of Library. Yeah. I think it was actually just Library or Land Mox Stony Silence. And because I put him on Paradoxical Outcome, I decided to forego Library and just slam the Stony Silence. Because yeah. he could just win on turn two with Lotus and Land, right? Well... He sacrifices the Lotus for Mana Drain. At this point, I realize he is not playing Paradoxical Outcome, <laughs> but it's too late. Yeah. He actually had Jace in his hand, and he could have played turn one Jace, um, in which case I would have just gone library, and then I would yeah. have actually, it would have been, you know, a back and forth, but I think I would have won it. Or if he just, he didn't do it, so it was actually perfect for me to go library, right? Because yeah. he's waiting to Mana Drain something. Yeah. If I had known he was not playing Paradoxical Outcome, and he was playing Grixis Thieves, I would have 100% played library. Naturally. So I lost to that, and I was so upset. And then in game three, Owen Turtenwald begins watching my match, <laughs> <laughs> who just got you know top four in the Pro Tour. And I mulligan to five, and it's a bad hand. And um, it's like he counters the first thing I do, and he actually, uh, I actually have to decide. I have the Mystical Tutor, which is really bad when you're mulliganing to five. <laughs> yep. And I, I decide not to mulligan for Ancestral. I mulligan for Gush, and I have Land Land in play. It actually turns out to be right because I gush and then um, I draw into two misstep and he plays something. I misstep and he missteps it again. Uh, well, I forget exactly. I, I forget exactly. Anyway, I used one of my, I actually, I got that mixed up. I, I misstep something. He, I didn't play both my misstep. I think what happened was I found out that he had a misstep somehow. I don't mm-hmm. remember how he must've played something that I misstep. And then I drew it. I drew one misstep off gush is what it was. <laughs> and then I drew another the turn later. So here's what happened. I, I gush. I, I, I feel like I'm back in the game. I, I get a third, another land drop because of gush. So it's functionally drawing three cards, right? Hmm. And one of them's a misstep. He plays something. He plays something. I misstep it. He missteps back. That's what happened. And the next turn, I draw a misstep. Here's the crucial thing. I have one misstep yep. in my hand. And like I think I have misstep and plow at this point is my hand. Mm-hmm. He plays a vamp tutor or a, a demonic tutor, I think. And I'm like, oh, and then I think I'm thinking, oh, God, here comes Tinker. If he plays Tinker for Blightsteel, I'm going to plow it, and we'll be yeah. good. If he plays Key Vault, we're good. I'll misstep the key. But guess what he does? He I does get Tinker. He plays Tinker, but he tinkers for Voltaic Key and oh. plays Time Vault. Oh, so okay. it's the, it the exact play that beats my misstep and plow. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh my god, this can't be real. <laughs> so I end, it, I end day one at 6-2 and two after a 7-1 and one start. In a normal tournament, I would have just been able to draw into the top eight and had my eight Star City Games Power Nine top eight. <laughs> um, that was pretty infuriating. So, and that was incredibly demoralizing, though. So, um, and and Owen was like, "I guess that's vintage." And then Owen's like, "Why doesn't anyone play Key Vault on the Vintage Super League?" So, uh, you know, anyway, that night Montolio predicts that he's going to face me, and I, you know, we're looking forward to it because I've never actually gotten to play him in a tournament, in a paper tournament. Yeah. before i'm one and one against him on magic online um but it was really nice not to play shops all day so of course my next round i have to play against shops right <laughs> and it's brian demars who i yep. played many times in the power nine series yep. i think my record against him is something like one in three or so he's one of the few people i have a losing record against um maybe two and four or something like that we, we played in a number of small events and tournaments over the years mm-hmm. um he mulligans to six this is a crazy match right i mean a really crazy match because Demars is, uh, is in my opinion, one of the best technical players in the world. Yeah. Um, he mulls the six and he's all in on, and I'm all of the six as well. He and he plays 
uh, like a Mistress Factory, a Black Lotus, and Lodestone Golem, which I have Force for. And he was all in on that. He has no Soul Lands or Mistress Workshop. So I'm able to kind of just take over from there. I'm able to play, you know, because he can't actually like play spears and be symmetrical about it. He's slow and he plays like a steel overseer and then maybe something else on yeah. turn three. And he can't wasteland my lands because he needs his wastelands. I think he went like factory wasteland wasteland. He was using his wastelands for his own mana. Um, so I won that game. And game two was very, very close. I force of will the first, I think force of will inspector. And then I, I can't quite get over the hump. Um, and he kills me, he kills me, I, he gets me exactly to zero life. If I had one more life, I think I would have stabilized and won that game because I by-forced him, uh, and I had another by-force, but he just had a hair enough to, hair enough, uh, damage. In game three, though, he mulligans to four, and he never has a permanent the rest of the game. I strip mine his land, I, I just fragmentize and by-force his moxen, I dac fade in his artifacts, like, he never actually had permanence, it was a blowout. Yeah. Um, and after the match, he's like, actually, he thinks that I was his worst matchup in the room and actually the worst player playing his worst matchup just because of the way I <laughs> built my deck. <laughs> so that was nice. a nice compliment. And it, it, you know, it was a tough match, but Brian's a fierce competitor. So I felt good at this point because I'm, what am I, seven and two? Yeah. Right. And at this point, I could be playing against um, Montolio, but I got paired against the salad. Mike Soli Mossy. And unfortunately, this is one of the worst matchups for me. Because he plays four Snapcaster Mages, which are, in my opinion, very good in the mirror, but inferior against the rest of the metagame. I like Jace Fringe Prodigy against the rest of the metagame much better. Gotcha. Because it's faster, more flexible early on, filters early on. It's better on turn one. But Mm -hmm. it's really hard for me to win the Snapcaster matchup because Snapcaster trumps Jace Fringe Prodigy so easily. Yeah. Um. In game one, he got Library of Alexandria on turn two or three and just took over the game. I had a slow reactive hand. And then in game two, I was just overwhelmed by his snapcast. And I couldn't quite get ahead. So now I'm seven and seven and three. Yeah. And I play against Josh Mekis. Um Game one, I just tempo him out. Uh, I do get Thing in the Ice and I get him down to like three life. And I decide, I, I debate, I'm like thinking, do I play Mentor here or not? I decide <laughs> to play the Mentor with Thing in the Ice flip even though I'm not sure it's the right play. And it turns out to be the right play because he had played a Null Rod that doesn't affect me, but he did it because he played this Planeswalker that, you, that you, they're ready, that you can sacrifice yeah. an artifact to kill my creature. So he yep. killed my thing in the ice. <laughs> so I needed the Mentor to kill him, and the Mentor killed him. Yep. By the way, I had to force Demonic Tutor because I was afraid he would get Sulfur Elemental. So <laughs> yep. that actually, I couldn't find Force of Will until I was like 30 cards in my deck. Otherwise, I would have blown him out much quicker. Game two was really long and interesting, and I I kept was so close to winning over and over again. Um, I probably should have just picked off his early Bob, but I didn't because he was doing so much damage to himself. He had like two ancient tombs, and like I had I don't remember whether I had pressure or not, but I felt like I did. So and I just thought I could contend with his other things, but it didn't work out that way. He kept flipping with Bob's lands and Moxen, and it was just like a nightmare. With I I was very close to winning multiple times, and then he finally pulled ahead, and I lost. And when game two ended, the clock was to the side of me and behind me, so I didn't see the time. Otherwise, I probably would have considered scooping game two earlier, even though I was in the game. Mm-hmm. And we started game three with like four minutes left, maybe three minutes. And I'm like, he he thought he he offered me a draw basically. I said, no, no, let's play quickly. Um, time was called when I had a sizable, significant advantage. Like I exploded out. I played yeah. ancestral. I played time walk. I played dig through time and treasure cruise. <laughs> And I 
on turn zero, I played a um, thing in the eye, and I had a Jace Fringe Prodigy. Yep. Um, or was that turn? Was turn one? I did all. I had I had the thing in the eye. So he was at like seventeen life, and on turn three of turns, this is the most interesting part of the entire tournament <laughs> for me. On turn three of turns, so I have turn one. I play thing in the ice. I'm like finally a win condition. I play thing in the ice. And I pass the turn, and then my goal is to flip thing in the ice next turn and get two attacks and try. And I had a containment priest in play as well. Yeah. So I need to. I I need to. I can deal like sixteen damage to him, maybe more. And I just thought. I just thought if I can get a containment priest and another containment priest, and then attack twice with this, I'll win. Um. So we get to turn three, and I'm like obviously rushing, so I'm not able to think everything through. Um. And I have a flip Jace, and I have to decide what to flip. What to flashback? And my options are infinite. Like everything <laughs> in my deck, my, it's basically demonic tutor. Yeah. I have ancestral time walk, dig, cruise, and gush. And I, the most important decision to me is what do I flashback? Paul Mastriano thinks it's time walk. I don't think it's time walk because I have turns one, three, and five, so it can't be time walk. I'm like time walk doesn't actually help me. I don't think. Um, I I narrow it down to ancestral gush and dig. Obviously, ancestral is better than treasure cruise. Um, and there's merits for all of them. Mm-hmm. So the ancestral recall, I only have like, what do I have? Like two, la- three lands in play, Kevin. Is that right? You, you saw it. Well, uh, I think yeah. You only had two or three, three lands in a box. Three or lands something. in a box, right? It wasn't Ancestr- much mana. Ancestral, and I need to be able to flip the thing in the ice and attack this turn to get mm-hmm. him to tempt. Uh, sorry. Well, I yeah. I guess the containment priest will turn return back to my hand. So I need to find containment priest, both another containment priest, and so I can attack next turn for um, eleven. Right, mm-hmm. that's my plan. Um, so if I play ancestral, I've used a mana, a precious mana when I only have, <laughs> I only have like three lands and play in a mox. So I just I, I'm, and if I use dig, then I've used like almost all my mana, over half my mana, right? So yep. and I need, I, and so that seems poor because if I dig, I, the dig will probably allow me to flip the thing in the ice, but it won't allow, but it might not, it might not. If I get like dig into like preordain preordain i'm not going to be able to flip it right yeah the ancestral i need i need i think i had w- removed one thing in the ice token so i needed at least three spells right here maybe i hadn't maybe i'd removed zero i don't remember um so i might have needed to hit four four spells and they have to be sorcerers or instants moxon don't count right so i decide after like thinking for a minute and my judge the judge says you need to make a play i'm like okay i'll i will live or die by my favorite card the card i wrote a 400 book <laughs> page book on <laughs> gush <laughs> sure enough gush actually gets me the cards i need and the mana drop and i mean it will, i don't think i need another mana drop because i had tons of cards also a dac in play i think yeah um to it, it gave me the mana i needed and the cards i needed to flip uh to flip thing on the ice so i attack for seven he goes to ten yep the problem is that i needed more than that i needed i wasn't thinking exactly about everything i needed to be able to deal more damage than that and I think in retrospect, neither Ancestral nor Gush were correct. I think that the dig was the correct play. Because yeah. what happened was I got to turn five, and I could get him down to three or a one, but I couldn't win the game. Yep. And you had no bolts in that list. No bolts. Zero yep. bolts. If I had a bolt, I would have been able to win the game, because I certainly yep. would, have been able to find it, would have been able to find it. Um, and I just wasn't thinking enough about that. And if I thought it had enough time, like if I was playing on Magic Online, I had a Magic uh, a computer clock, I could have thought through what is my strategic objective, exactly how much damage do I have to deal. 
I was so stuck on like, let me find the, another containment priest and just win with the thing in the ice. When instead, on turn one, instead of actually playing thing in the ice at all, I should have been focused on just finding mentor. Mm-hmm. You know, and if I had found the mentor, I think I would have won the game. Because if I play turn three mentor, if I dig into mentor, which I would, which actually it turns out the mentor was in my next. I actually found mentor in my fifth turn. Yeah, <laughs> it was there. If I had dug, I would have found mentor. I would have played it on turn three, and I would have won the game on you, turn five. Yeah, yeah. So that was a devastating conclusion to that. So I had a draw, and you know, I wasn't going to ask Josh for a scoop because even though it was obvious I was about to win, you know, we, yeah. that's what happened. So. Yeah, you were in complete um, control at that point, but that's yeah, that's the situation. Fascinating situation, though. But there's one yeah. thing I want to point out about. Um, actually, let me come back to that. Let me just finish the tournament real quick. Uh, round two, round twelve, I played against Jonathan Leone, who was made top eight. So I played against half the top eight competitors. <laughs> um, he and I played against the ninth and tenth place player. Um, in games one and two, we split. He was playing Paradoxical Outcome. In game three, though, and Josh was watching this, I was so upset because I decided. I usually keep in uh, like a fragmentizer too, but I decided to, to sideboard in all the plows because I wanted to be able to beat his combo. Yeah. And that one plow, which was my revised, only revised plow, would have been my fragmentize. And I drew it in my opening hand. And he had Mox and Academy. If uh-huh. that plow had been a fragmentize, I would have won the game. Yeah. Because he wouldn't have been able to go off with Paradoxical Outcome two turns later. Instead, what happened was I had plow and turn two or three, I played Stony Silence. His deck list has one fragmentized between the main deck and sideboard. And he had in play, when I played the Stony Silence, Mox, 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 uh, Sensei's Divining Top, all kinds of things. Well, guess what? <laughs> he had the one fragmentized and he blew me out. Mm-hmm. And I was so upset about it. So I, I, I was like totally kicking myself in, the, you know, I, I, I deviated very subtly from my sideboard plan. And I lost as, as a result. Yeah. In the last round, round 13, I played Ryan Fisher. Which is kind of Dinu. It's the Dinu Ma. It was a, he was playing like a, uh, a Jeskai Landstill deck, and I won two zero. So I ended up uh, was it twelve and four at fifteenth place. And like if I'd win won any of those other matches, if I didn't draw against Josh, if I beat Josh Jonathan Leon, if I beat um, you know uh, the Grixis player because I make a better a library play, I would have made top eight. But kind of disappointing end. It because, especially because that lowers my average standing in the Power Nine series, <laughs> <laughs> which is awesome. Fine. So you uh, thirteen rounds, you had four losses and a draw, right? So no, it must have. Let's say I, I lost to uh, Jonathan Leon, to uh, the Salad, and to uh, Nathan Marska and John Brenneman. Yeah, so that's so right. you were X four and one, one right? Yeah. Um, the thing I wanted to get back to is that gush situation. In the in against Josh, Josh Meckes, where I decided yeah. to gush the the decisive. So here's the thing: I wrote a whole book on gush, right? And <laughs> in the second, I was actually playing t- testing for the BSL last night, and I uh, gush is an amazing card. And part of the reason it's such an amazing card, I don't mean just powerful. I mean it is a thought provoking, uh, skill intensive, deep card. It's a card that mm-hmm. like you can literally try and master the rest of your life. And even though I have written a 400 page card uh, book. Uh, on about this card there are circumstances in which i really don't know when to gush or when you know how to sequence <laughs> it and and you know and so on and um in the second chapter of my gush book there's a uh, in, there's a sequence table of why you don't gush on turn two right mm-hmm. and the basic reason you gush on turn three at the earliest is because you sacrifice mana production by you've sacrificed a third of your mana production by turn three and a, mm-hmm. and a quarter of it by turn four if you do that 
you're not maximizing your overall mana potential. And, and it's an extremely novice play. Blue mages are taught to play blue draw spells as soon as possible. And the reason for that is twofold. First, the earlier you play your draw spells, the more likely you are to resolve it, and the more resources you can then redeploy to play more draw spells and get more card advantage, right? Mm-hmm. Well, part of that is mana. For draw spells that cost mana, like Thirst for Knowledge or Factor Fiction, not playing a draw spell when you have an opportunity to is a completely foregone opportunity, right? But the other part of it is your opponent has time to develop as well. But that first reason does not apply to Gush. Because there's no mana cost to Gush, there mm-hmm. is no foregone mana uh, unused mana that you could have used to play Gush. And so that's the reason why you hold off Gush on turn till turn three at the earliest. But here's the funny thing. <laughs> and this never occurs on Magic Online because Magic Online isn't set up this way. It's actually symmetrical for the end of matches as well. If you are in the penultimate turn of a game, meaning the second to last turn of a game, which mm-hmm. can only be known if you are in turns, <laughs> then playing Gush on the penultimate turn is wrong for the same reason that playing Gush on turn two is wrong. Mm-hmm. There's a symmetry there. But yeah. that so rarely comes up that it's not something I have seriously analyzed before. Well, I take that back. I actually have analyzed it once before. I'm going <laughs> to tell you when it was. In the 2015 Vintage Championship, I went 7-1-2. and 7-1-2. and two. I had one loss and two draws. And one of my draws was against an opponent who had overwhelming advantage. I was gu- using Gush Bond. I had two Gushes in my hand, Tendrils of Agony, and a bunch of stuff. But all I had to do was find Fast Bond. Yep. Or just Storm Out. And he was at 17 life. Actually, very symmetrical. <laughs> Identical to Josh Mecca's here. Uh-huh. Um, in that situation, in turn three of time, I got used one of my Gushes. And it was a complete mistake. And I wrote in my tournament report it was a mistake because if I had just waited till turn five, it made no difference. I had four lands in play. I could have played both the gushes in turn on turn five. I didn't gain anything by playing the gush there. But if I had waited, I would have been able to play gush, gush, preordain, misstep, force, tendrils, and win the game. Uh-huh. I would have had 17 damage exactly with the other stuff, the other moxin and stuff. Yeah. Even though I didn't, I was, the only reason I played the gush on turn three is because I was looking for fast mod. And I would have maximized my mana on turn five, so I would have had an even better chance of finding fast bond on turn five of turns. Interesting. So, yeah, but this can't again. It does not cannot come up in Magic Online. It only is a paper circumstance or a circumstance where you know. I guess it could come up theoretically on Magic Online if you knew that this was the second second to last turn you'll have because of you're like a minute left in the clock or something. Yeah. So there's a symmetry there <laughs> that you don't play Gush on turn two, but you also don't play Gush ever the penultimate turn of the game. And that's <laughs> happened before. I didn't learn my lesson. So I, <laughs> you know, that's anyway. funny. But don't I play never... Gush on turn N minus one. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So if I ever do a fourth edition of my Gush book, I'll have to add that in there as well. <laughs> that's really interesting. I hope that if I'm ever in that situation, I will think of this exact conversation and remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yep, because you pointed out if I had had that extra mana on turn five, so if I just dig through time, yep. right, I would have been able to, um, th- I would have had the additional mana I needed on turn five to just totally ramp the like m- mentor and one or two monks. Yeah. So, um, gush, gush normally does not hamper mana production, be- but it does if you're n minus one turns. So, <laughs> that's awesome. Go. Well, and congratulations way, on a strong performance. Thank, thank you, Kevin. Uh, it was it was a blast. I was just disappointed I wasn't able to, you know, at least make top eight. But I, I felt like I would have had a good run if I had made it. But uh, especially because neither the salad nor the Jonathan Brenneman made top eight. 
So yeah. I feel like, and I beat just, you know, half the players I played who made top eight. Uh, the <laughs> other two I wanted to replay because I felt like yeah. I had, should have won those matches. Um, so, and it, it would have been fun to play uh, Montolio for at, at long last in paper and especially in a high level moment. Definitely. Um, but I just wanted to just, is a kind of coda to the discussion on gosh, you know, I was playing against uh, Jaco, testing against Jaco last night and he was playing his five color control deck. And, and you know, I was, he was tapped down and I'm like, do I play gosh or not? And, and I decided to play Gush, and and I played it prematurely. And the reason I played it is because he couldn't counter it, mana drain it. But I reread after playing him. I reread sections of my chapter of my Gush book, <laughs> and the section that convinced me was wrong was I have this whole section about how ineffectual counter magic is against Gush. And once I had read a, read it, I was like, oh my god, I should have just waited. And I and I actually think I lost that game that I played against Jaco. I think I won anyway. Huh. Um, even if you've written a book on about Gush and thought about it more than anyone else and probably played it more than anyone else, you can still get it wrong. And I I do all the time. But one of the things I also say in my Gush book is that even knowing the rules of Gush is not enough. You have to be extremely disciplined to follow the rule. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's hard to do. So. Magician, teach thine self. <laughs> well put. All right. So we've got... Uh, an upcoming SCG con in December. We don't know if there will be another Power Nine event at it, but based on this uh, and Mike, based on the success of this one, in my opinion, but also in talking with Jonathan Suarez about it, it certainly seems like a high potential, a high likelihood that there will be another Power Nine event at the next SCG con, and Roanoke will be a much nicer place to stay in December than in June, and don't stay at the Days Inn. <laughs> I think that about I think that about wraps up my thoughts on SCG Con. What do you say, Steve? <laughs> I, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> All right, we've got a, a little bit of a treat here because normally this would be the time of the year when we would be reviewing Corset 2019. If you're following along in Magic News, you know that Corset was recently fully spoiled, and we're ready to do it. However, timing is really kind of stymieing us. What with VSL and our prep for SCG Con and our follow up here. And other things going on in life, vacation and whatnot, we don't have the opportunity to do everything we want to do right now. So we're, we need to back up in time and make up for a little bit of lost time. We never reviewed Battle Bond because we previewed it. We previewed it. We had some preview cards thanks to Watsi, and that was great. However, we never reviewed it because initially we thought it was not really ripe with vintage playables. But we've since had a lot of questions from you, the listeners, via social media and in person as to a, a handful of Battlebond cards, a short list. So what we're going to do is review a little bit of Battlebond here, and then our next show will be our Core Set 2019 review. So we're going to wrap this show up with a little bit of a Battlebond review. Now, normally we would do a report card for before every uh, review. But since the battle bond was off cycle from regular sets, it wasn't enough time for Dominaria to be fully baked, and so we'll save our Dominaria report card for before core set 2019. Now we also like to review the mechanics of a set going in, but there's there's a couple of key things in terms of battle bond that really kind of stymie that. One is that battle bond, as you all know, is a two-headed giant centric format. It's designed to be played in two-headed giant. Many of the cards are designed specifically for that purpose and as such mechanically it doesn't have a lot to do for one-on-one in the majority of cases there's new mechanics like assist which lets another player help you pay for a spell that mechanic need not apply in (laughs) one-on-one in tournament magic however 
there are still a couple of cards that are very interesting and potentially applicable to Vintage, and those you have asked us to review. So we got four cards here. This will be a bit of a, a quick one. Where would you like to begin, Steve? We've only got four cards, so we can afford to be a little bit choosy here. Wherever you'd like. All right, let's start with Stunning Reversal. Now, this is an instant for 3B. The next time you would lose the game this turn, instead draw seven cards and your life total becomes one. Exile, Stunning Reversal. So this is a play on the Lich's Mirror action, right? Definitely. And Lich's Mirror, which which somewhat famously made an appearance in VSL recently, quite comically, (laughs) actually, which is pretty funny. Lich's Mirror says, similar to this, if you would lose the game, instead shuffle your hand, your graveyard, and all your permanents you own into your library, draw seven cards, your life total becomes 20. So Lich's Mirror is a a bit more generous because it just sits in play, and the next time you would lose, it triggers. Uh, It doesn't trigger. It replaces it. Excuse me. Stunning Reversal is a little bit less flexible. It's black. It costs one less mana. But it only works this turn. It says the next time you would lose the game this turn. You still draw seven, but you only get one life point. So it's a little less generous. So Steve, at face value, you know, you and I reviewed Lich's Mirror. And it did about as well in the vintage metagame as we predicted. It's an interesting effect. It's a very all-in kind of concept. And this one's not nearly as generous as the Mirror is. <laughs> right. Well, it, this does have the advantage of costing only four mana and being an instant. Yep. So it's it's much more efficient than the uh, the other things we've seen. Mm-hmm. The surprise value is not black. to be understated. Right, and it only requires one black. Mm-hmm. So you can play it in response to a game-winning play, which is nice. Yep, that's true. The surprise value has some definitely increases this card's playability because it gives it a certain kind of value in effectively every match of Magic yeah. that Lich's Mirror doesn't have. <laughs> Now, the main problem with this is that it's extremely conditional. I mean, in a sense, yeah. you're planning to lose the game, yep. which is usually a bad plan. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say, logically speaking, this is unplayable because you shouldn't have a deck that's designed around planning to lose the game. <laughs> <laughs> However, that said, there are certain decks that are good at bringing themselves to the brink and can then push themselves over. And so you're right that you are dependent on this card resolving in order for it to, to work, uh, and, you know, tautology notwithstanding. The, but you can just cast this card and see if it resolves. And then if it resolves, you can play into the game-losing scenario. So you don't always have to be right on the brink when you cast it. But if you've got something along the lines of Necro or Yawgmoth's Bargain, you can just cast this, see if it resolves, and then... As soon as it does, it's very similar in effect to a draw seven. (laughs) And whether or not you need a draw seven when you've got Necro or Bargain in play is another matter. I can't think of offhand another, let's say, existing or recently existing combo deck in Vintage that has the capability to kill itself at at will. Is Is there something I'm not thinking of? Not that I can think of. There's Demonic Consultation, right? You can consult for a card that's not your deck. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's right. So Spoils of the Vault. Yep, sure, there you go. That's a little bit retro. We played it in our Storm 10 days, and it was a good card back then, but that was before Mental Misstep existed. Yeah, you could get into a scenario where you resolve this, and then cast Spoils of the Vault, and they misstep it, and you're like, oh, okay, go. (laughs) (laughs) That would be very disheartening. Um, What else? You You could deck yourself with Oath or with Doomsday, although decking yourself with Doomsday and then replacing it with immediately losing the game is not a good idea. (laughs) <laughs> it's pretty comical actually Lich's Mirror protects you from decking this card does not if you have no cards in your library 
Like on your upkeep, you have no cards in your library, you cast this. The next time you'd lose, so you go to draw your card, and then you don't lose the game. Instead, you draw a card and lose the game. (laughs) (laughs) So this card does not protect you from decking, which is pretty funny. You can cast it for effect, and yes, you will not lose the game once, and then you will proceed to lose the game. So this is this is really protecting you from life loss. Oh, interestingly enough, this card also doesn't protect you from poison. Ah, uh, good point. Yeah, if you die from poison, you will not lose the game, draw seven cards, go to one, and then lose the game. <laughs> huh. So this really only protects you from damage or one-shot win the game effects. If your Seven. opponent has something that says they win the game... Oh, actually, I don't know the rules well enough to know if that's true. If they have something that says they win the game, I don't know if this stops that. So I... Uh, my view is that this card is not playable, but I think you you there are definitely combos to be had. Um, I just don't think it's going to show up in the vintage top eight because you would you know part of the problem is if you get one half of the combo but not the other, then the utility is narrow. Um, uh, the drawing seven is pretty powerful, but setting you back at one mm-hmm. life is not really necessarily helpful. It is, <laughs> and the cards that this combos with are either they fall into two broad categories: good enough to win the game on their own. Necro, Bargain, Doomsday, right? Um, or they are not good enough to play and they're too high risk anyway, like Spoils of the Vault. The right. only intersection I see between them really is Demonic Consultation, because that's a card that's good on its own and becomes better once you've resolved this. Oh, wait, never mind. Consult <laughs> consult doesn't work for the reasons I stated about decking. I'm sorry. This, this isn't Lich's Mirror. This doesn't reset your permanence and cards. So never mind. Consult doesn't work. Yeah, this but is rough. Spoils of the Vault would. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you could necro yourself down to zero with this in play, you'd do it. But it's not that much better than just necroing all those cards to begin with. <laughs> you know, if you necro yourself to zero, how many cards did you need to win the game? Right. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I think this is this is not quite good enough to play. It's cute and it's fun, and it will definitely be spicy in an EDH game here or there. But I'm going to go with zero for vintage. Next, let's talk about Sentinel Tower, an artifact for four. Whenever an instant or sorcery spell is cast during your turn, Sentinel Tower deals damage to any target equal to 1 plus the number of instant and sorcery spells cast before that spell this turn. Well, clearly, this is a castable spell in Vintage, right? Four mana artifacts are are a playable thing, although the majority of them are played in workshop decks that are then going to cast no instants or sorceries. So the casting cost, while a playable one, is in context, a little bit high for a combo deck in Vintage or a Xerox deck. Not insurmountable. The effect is pretty generous, actually. I like the way they worded it in the sense that it doesn't care who's casting an instant or sorcery. So if your opponent force of wills your mox, this still triggers on their force and does one damage to a target. Yes. I also like that this is very generous in targeting. It's any target, so you can shoot down Planeswalkers with this. I really, really don't like the way they worded the quantity, though. Yeah. It's one plus the number of instant or sorcery spells cast before that spell. Why isn't it just, just equal the, to. the number of instant or sorceries cast this yeah. turn? I think, I think they probably wanted to avoid the confusion of just does it count this spell? <laughs> yeah. I think that's what they were trying to avoid. But it's, it's a hard sell for me when the first line of the card is whenever an instant or sorcery spell is cast. <laughs> So, <laughs> asking the question, does it count this spell I'm casting? Well, what did it trigger off of? Oh, the casting of a spell. Hmm. I guess it does yeah. probably count this spell. Right. Yeah. I, I, so I just, think I get the reason, but I don't like it. So, um, just I want to give an example here. So, suppose, um, you know, you're a control deck and you've got this out. Yep. And um, I play a creature. 
I don't know, a Deathrite Shaman, or Leovold, let's say Leovold, you play a Lightning Bolt, you can bolt the Leovold, and then you can then direct one damage to a Planeswalker or a Bob. Yep. Right? Yep. And then if you play one more instant or sorcery, so if you misstep my bolt, then I can, and I misstep back, then I can actually do three damage to another target. Well, in that example, you get to do two and then three because it triggers on whenever someone casts an instant or sorcery, it counts you so and your opponent. Misstep. Yeah. 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 So, like, so if, if, you if, if you just start your turn with this battle. in play and you say preordain, this triggers for one. Then if they misstep in response, this triggers again. You get to do it's that's lightning bolt to any target. Yeah. So it's here's, two and one. Here's an interesting thing. Whenever an instant or sorcery spell is cast during your turn, Sentinel Tower deals one damage to any or just damage to any target equal to one plus number. So the number of damage is not set when the trigger goes on the stack. It oh, can vary. No, well, it can vary be- number no, of spells cast be. before it. No, it must. It's fixed when it goes on the stack. Sorry, I was yeah. thinking it might change in the way the Aetherflux Reservoir changes, but that's probably the also they didn't want to get into that shenanigans. Yeah. So, and regardless, in the preordained plus misstep scenario, you're going to have a trigger for one and a trigger for two. This is, I think, what's amazing about this card is that it's kind of the perfect control win condition. It's both a win condition and a defensive maneuver. It's like moat. Yeah. That that like wipes out your opponent's board when you play counterspell. Yeah, <laughs> which is like exactly what you want to do. And <laughs> that's a good point. And in the vintage context, because several of our counters are free, you can just tap out and play several. it and start immediately getting them, its benefit. More than half of them these days. I yeah. mean, between force and misstep and mindbreak trap, the the minority. Yeah. The minority of them aren't free. That's right. The, the median counterspell costs no mana in vintage. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. The median. Because, I mean, Spell Pierce doesn't see play anymore, but there's a little bit of Flusterstorm, a lot of Pyroblast, and a little bit of Mana Drain. Yeah. So, yeah, I like your point there is that this plays all the roles that a control deck wants. You get, you know, the pings add up over time. They can remove pesky creatures like Snapcasters. They can yeah. go after Planeswalkers, and it doesn't take much, right? Right. Oh, and by the way, this is a perfect win condition for Paradoxical Outcome. Yeah. Uh, I mean, no, I, no, actually, it's not that great because it yeah, only counts in sorcery. Yeah, I guess most of your things sorceries. are artifacts. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, here's the thing, right? Um, it's actually great for a Yawgmoth's Will deck. Yeah. But um, what I would say is that number one, this is, isn't going to be played by Oath because Oath wants your opponent to have small creatures. Yeah. It's too expensive for a Jeskai deck because the Jeskai deck just doesn't play Soul Ring and the big mana. Yep. Um, it's definitely playable in a Mana Drain deck. This strikes me as it could be a finisher for Landstill, but the problem is Landstill already has finishers that, well, yeah, you know, it it might actually be good in Landstill because Landstill could just use its like counter magic to wipe out its opponent's stuff. Yeah. Um. But I mean, you already have good forecasting cost removal. You've got the four mana uncounterable wrath. Yeah. Um. And Jace. What's that called? Yeah. Supreme verdict and Jace. Yeah. So it competes with that. I think if this is going to see any play, it would be in a big mana blue deck. It plays very it well with mana drain, both before and after. Well. Right. Yep. You drain into it, and then and then you just, Yawgmoth's will literally wins the game. Not because <laughs> not because of the counter spells, but because it literally wins the game this time. Yeah. Not figuratively, literally. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> it point. It kills your opponent. <laughs> so, you know, Yawg, I mean, think about it. Yawgmoth, if Yawgmoth's will is the first spell, that's one damage to your opponent. So if your opponent is at, let's say, 17, <laughs> they're at 16, then you play one more, one another instant, let's say, Time Walk or Ancestral, Yep. Now they're at set. Now they're at fifteen because that's two damage. And then let's say how many more spells do we need to win? Uh, let's say you play um, three, four, five, six. So you have to get all the way to six. Are you sure it's not? Because well, three, four, five doesn't do it. Three, four, five is only twelve. 
you would need to pay four more spells. Okay, but that's from, certainly from feasible. seventeen, playing five spells out of your graveyard is not with a young Moss Will. That's that's easy. Yeah, yeah, not unreasonable. Not at all. Yeah, that's interesting. Not to mention it's defensive. So, so perhaps Grixis Thieves. Yeah, if they wanted a slot for this, I think you need to. Yeah, yeah, this, maybe something like the that. Interesting thing, though, to your earlier point, this kind of takes up a removal slot. You can right. you can cut a lightning bolt for this. I think so. It it, it weakens you against shops, of course. Yes, and it can kill planeswalkers. Yeah. So it's but yeah. it's actually nice against. Uh, oh, and look, <laughs> look at the effect oh. this has against um, oath. As yes, long as you, you have keep an your instant, remember oathing. Yeah, they give you a, they say, give you an orchard token, and you just play any instant to if remove you can it. Get, also, if you can get this out, how insane is ancient grudge with this? Oh wow, good grief! <laughs> <laughs> or lava dart things like that. <laughs> no, not that you would play lava dart or right. firebolt, but. But Ancient Grudge is really good with this. I mean, if you can get this out against a Workshop deck, then you could Ancient Grudge and you could hit basically four targets. You could Ancient Grudge destroying a Sphere, mm-hmm. doing one damage to like a Frexian Revoker, and then you could Ancient Grudge flashback and then kill another Sphere and then do another, then do two points of damage to like, yeah. you know, whatever, a Steel Over Sphere yeah, or whatever. Yeah, it kind of turns all your targeted removal into Kolagon's commands against shops. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's kind of a beating. You're right. It's a serious beating against shops if you can get past if you can crest the wave because their creatures all start most of them start small enough to just pick off with this. Right now, of course, it costs four. So yeah, who knows if they can get there, <laughs> get this out. Very interesting though. Yeah, super interesting. I'm very interested in the the just the passive nature of this effect. It's very attractive for control players. Yeah, I mean, it's just a win condition. You don't even need win conditions in your deck then. <laughs> Which is nice. And by the way, it's completely symmetrical. What do you mean? It meaning when your opponent plays instance, you get to trigger. On your turn. It has to be On your, your turn. turn. Oh, it does. Yeah. Oh, that's not as good. Well, it's, it, I mean, anytime they counter you on your turn, though, you can you gain a certain a aggressiveness when you have this in play, right? Their Wait, missteps so your become a lot worse. can also do damage with this as well. No, you control the trigger every time. It doesn't say that player. It's always to you. Any target. Right. You control the target. Yes. Sorry. They get uh, just, they get punished by playing on your turn. It has a defense well, grade that's kind too of bad. effect. That's too bad. It it actually can't do it on their turn. That weakens it substantially in my mind. Because if you're mana draining, you want to be able to do it on their turn and get trigger off. Of it. <laughs> that's true. So so that's true. So you do have to be. There's an implied aggressiveness with this. You can't yeah. just be reacting to their stuff on their turn every time. So, but this plays well with a lot of the common themes in vintage right now. You know, preordains preordains become quite good with this in play and it just it would change your timing for removal against shops right but that's okay because common removal against shops includes by force shattering spree fragmentize it's all a lot of main phase stuff you're right about Correct. ancient grudge being a beating but you just have to uh, manage your timing i i don't think that this is going to be played in the next couple of months because it doesn't it doesn't interact with the big four or the big five if you count dredge right now enough yeah, I think it's very good against shops, but there are other things that at this mana cost that are just as good. Yep. Um, I think know. this is actually kind I, of interesting against seen... Jeskai. This really, aside from Mentor, which obviously Mentor is its own animal, but this pretty solidly addresses almost every other threat that's played in Jeskai these days, within reason. Uh, like, you can maybe. shoot down a Jace the Mind Sculptor if you just initiate a combat, uh, uh, I mean, a, a counterspell battle on your turn. If your opponent has Jace the Mind Sculptor and you just play Preordain, it's incredibly risky for them to just misstep it, right? Because then all yeah. you need is one other spell to kill their Jace. Sure, sure. No, wait, I mean, wait, 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 hold on. This... Uh, so let me, I'm sorry, I need to restate that. 
If you play Preordain and you target their Jace with this trigger, then anything they play for the rest of that turn kills their Jace. Right, that's true. But it's just as likely that this thing will get DAC. <laughs> well, okay, so, that's fair. DAC is some insurance against this, you're right. And that's actually a pretty huge beating. What a liability yeah, to get this stolen by their deck. Yep. Yeah, I just don't think the metagame is structured in such a way as to make this really useful. There are definitely versions of the metagame that I could see where this could be really useful, but uh, this is not the one we're inhabiting. Yeah, I'm also wondering, do you think there's a, a place for this in ritual decks? Like, like imagine if this was played the year Mark Lenegro won. Mm-hmm. I mean, this would be insane that year. <laughs> Probably. It'd be a bit yeah. much better. Can you go more aggressively with this deck, though? Can you play this in a ritual-based deck, do you think, as an alternate? I do not. Okay. I'm, I'm going zero. Okay. Because it's a three-month period, I'm going zero. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I, and I agree with your assessment that this, while this has utility in some of the current matchups in certain scenarios, you, you don't, it's, it's too slow against Oath. They can still just trump you by pl- giving you Orchard tokens in your end step. It's probably well, not as good as many other four mana cards against shops. And the liability against DAC is huge, as you just said. I would actually flip it. I think that the the um, the flow chart goes in the opposite direction. It's not what's good against it. It's what what would use it. And and mm-hmm. so I think there's there's two steps. The first step is do would any of the existing top tier decks get a boost from this card? If not, would is there a deck that's marginal that would get a boost and be elevated into the upper tier with this? Mm-hmm. I think the answer to the first question is no. And the answer to the second question is no. I see. And theref- therefore, yeah. Well, It's I not think about how this is used against those decks, it would how it would be used by them. I think all signs point in the same direction. Let's talk next about Spellseeker. A creature, human wizard, for two you. When Spellseeker enters the battlefield, you may search your library for an instant or sorcery card with converted mana cost two or less. Reveal it, put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. It's a 1-1. One, one. Human wizard. Yep. When I saw this card, I immediately dubbed it Think It Mage. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> That's perfect. They should have called it that, actually. Right? right? So, okay, let's talk, Let's we'll do a little bit of diligence. A, a three-mana card in Vintage for this mana cost is eminently Creatures? playable. Yeah, uh, Trinket Mage for sure. Yep. Uh, a creature, uh, sorry, a, a tutor for instance in Sorceries of mana cost two or less, I think is playable, even though there's not exactly a card that does that. We have the... the well, mystical tutor and merchant scroll as examples right right. they're close you can't go Um, get gush but you can go get lightning bolt or pyroblast yeah so you can get can you get a fire ice yep Mm -hmm. you can get fire ice you can get time walk you can get ancestral recall you can get um mana drain definitely miss mana misstep miss mental misstep fluster storm um you could get a merchant scroll you get brainstorm preordain what can you not get? You cannot get Gush. You cannot get Force of Will. You cannot get Dig Through Time or Treasure Cruise. You cannot get uh, Tinker. Tinker. That's outcome. a pretty big one. Yeah, Paradoxical Outcome. So I guess the question is, given what, given what you can get, what would you use this? How would you build value with it? Well, I mean, so... It sucks it's a 1-1, one, one, by the way. You I can mean, get, Trick is yeah, I know. 2-2. Two, two. I, I agree. So this, the level one is you can get restricted cards, right? This goes and gets your Ancestral or your Walk. And yeah. they frequently will. And they also, in, in depending on your archetype and your color combinations, get other restricted cards. This will get your DT or your balance. Oh, wow. We were just talking about blue blue cards. Yeah. I, this isn't even blue. Yeah. Demonic Tutor and Balance. That's, yeah. there we, that's opening up. 
some other space there. And this gets a lot of common removal. This will go get your lightning bolt, your swords. Wow. Yeah, your shattering spree, your ancient grudge, that kind of thing. Well, that's pretty versatile. It's very versatile. It is, but it also doesn't get, as we just discounted, a number of haymakers in the format. You can't go and get outcome or tinker. Or y'all will. Yeah, can't get can't get force of will or gush or any of the delve spells. I think the fact that it can get demonic tutor means it pretty much can get anything. <laughs> well, that's right. You can tutor chain if you're in black into any card, and you have to believe that even with those restrictions in a even in mono blue, your predominant targets are going to be ancestral and time walk, right? I agree. Those two combined are probably going to be the majority, even if you could get anything, and beyond them. There's no such thing as a truly mono blue deck in vintage, so it gets good role-playing cards like Plow and Balance, uh, Pyroblast. So if you're faced with common threats in the format, let's say you're playing against Workshops. Well, this goes and gets nearly every removal card that's commonly played, with few exceptions. You can't get Dak Faden, but you can get all your spot removal. You're playing against Oath. Well, this goes and gets Fragmentize or Disenchant. You're playing against Outcome. Okay, this could go get an Artifact removal such as by force or shattering spree but if you're in a different place in the game this can go get pyroblast or flusterstorm or mana drain so i think that this card plays a, a useful role in basically all the common matchups you can go get an answer or a threat against basically any deck in the format but is it efficient enough to do so so part let's, let's part of the reason trinket mage sees plays because yeah. it's it's played in decks that are that are operationally dependent on, not dependent on, but operationally <laughs> dramatically improved by Black Lotus or Mana Crypt, for example. Bomberman and So let's Alco. go with the pros and cons. Yeah. One, the range of spells it can get is enormous. Two, yes. uh, the, it's useful in almost every matchup. Yeah. Three, um, it's situationally flexible. Yes. So if you're behind, if you're ahead, you know, regardless, it's going to be useful. Um, con, it's an incredibly tiny body. <laughs> yep. Almost I mean, inconsequentially like, tiny. Yeah, basically. But for it three does mana. still trade with a Snapcaster. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, let's... Realistically, though, what's the difference between 1-1 one, one and 2-1 in Vintage right now? I'm sorry, not 2-1. I meant 2-2 two, two, thinking of Trinket Mage. There's the, cl- well, there's the clock issue, right? A Trinket Mage is a playing, much better clock. If you love playing a bug deck, it's a big difference. Yeah, Death Rite. Because, right. yeah, with Death Rites yeah. and, you know, small things that you're swarming. Oh, and, and Threatening Planeswalkers. It's it, the, the difference is that's relevant big. in Threatening Planeswalkers, yeah. sure. Okay, so it, it's a material fact that this has only has one power and one toughness. It's easier to pick off with a walking ballista, for example. If you're trying to just play defense in a chump block setting, this is worse at that than anything larger. You know where this might be good? In like a blue moon type deck, but it's blue white. Okay. Where where you don't have where you here's what you could do. You could sprinkle your deck with single. Mm-hmm. So you could play like a Supreme Verdict and, and this card Gives you reliable access to the single. <laughs> Except Supreme Verdict. <laughs> right. <laughs> but Good I see point. your point. I mean, there's not too many you would put in, but you can have your one main deck frag, your one, balance. your balance. You could play a main deck, kind of a haymaker against chops, because this goes against Hercules. So you can play Hercules or by force or Shattering Spree. So yeah, it doesn't take much. You would only need to add two or three more than the average vintage deck already does. The average, like Just Guy style deck anyway. In terms of really going inter- in, in terms yeah. of going and finding a card in your deck, though, this is a little bit above the mana cost threshold for that, though, right? We have enough restricted ways to do that at much less mana. The Mirage Tutors and DT 
and then all the all the draws the xerox style work that we do overlaps with this function and it's all much cheaper than three mana we don't even play thirst for knowledge anymore so I, I, <laughs> that's and, a good point and, and trinket mage is rarely played we keep comparing this to trinket mage which is rarely played i think i think the fact that this card cannot get force of will and cannot get uh dig through time is pretty pretty damning actually trinket mage can't get ancestral recall though either so yeah but it does get the best card ever printed <laughs> that's true <laughs> And man is important. This card, this card only gets the second and third best card. Of- <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Now it's it's hard to say. I mean, honestly, it's it's hard to say. I think the fact that Trinket Mage is a ten turn clock, like a nine turn clock, and this is a twenty, is actually a big difference. Sure. This I don't, it's really hard to predict. It's really really. Have difficult. you ever played with Trinket Mage in Outcome? No, okay. I never would. I did in a couple of small events, and it was only okay. I went and got top a couple of times when I just didn't have enough action. It couldn't find it needed to find outcome, and I went and got mana crypt several times because that was just the best way to further the combo. And I went and got black lotus a lot. This yeah. card seems like it would have a broader diversity of targets, yes. even though, as I said, ancestral and and time walk would be the the majority, but. Trinket Mage really peters out quickly after that, right? There's only like two or three yeah. things in a given deck you're ever going to get. This is going to have a broad range of targets. It's it, going to be useful forever. Yeah, even yeah. inside of one deck, there could be six to eight cards you could get within reason. If you were to ask me, like, let's say Trinket Mage was printed today. Yeah. And you would say, is Trinket Mage going to see play over the next three months? I would say no. Yeah, I would too. I don't even know if Trinket Mage is in the top. Is it in top eights? Is there any Trinket Mages? I don't think so. No, not lately. I don't and think. I, I think this card is probably better than Trinket Mage, honestly. But I don't know if that's good enough. <laughs> I think it suggests that this card is a vintage playable. Mm-hmm. But that's an entirely different question as to whether it will appear in a top eight in the near future. Yeah. And I have to insert a correction here because you can't get Fire Ice with this. I didn't think so. I thought the converted uh, mana cost was four. Up until was- yeah, up until a couple of years ago, you could. Then they changed that rule. And every zone except the stacked characteristics of a split card are those of its two halves combined. The Got mana it. cost of a split card is the combined mana cost of its two halves. So yep. you can spell snare fire on the stack, but yeah, yep. can't yeah. get it here. In all other zones, not, it's not four. Not that that's the, the backbreaker for Spellseeker, right? No, I mean, you're right. I just didn't want to let that go without saying... Yeah, I'm with you. I agree with you in your comparison to Trinket Mage right now. I think in the broad future that is vintage, there will probably be some Spellseeker play. Agreed. You know, there's some human wizard interactions to consider and vis-a-vis Cavern of Souls. and But none of the humans' decks right now play any spells that they would seek to go get anyway. What we need is a way to get this back in the hand easily. I mean, if this had the clause at the end of the, if the, if this had the clause that said like, you may return this to your hand at any time, or mm-hmm. even even worse but better, like this returns to your hand at the end of your turn or something, <laughs> you know, or, yeah. like it would be just way better. Yeah. Or if it costs two, <laughs> this card or would be two, bonkers. Or if, if it you're costs in like two. an Esper Zoa deck, yeah, yeah, exactly. If it was a two-one, I still now, don't think it would see be- play. No, exactly. Not at three mana. Yeah, I don't um, think that changes the, anything. The power isn't the issue. It's the home. Where <laughs> is this actually going to appear? Yeah. And um, I mean, what are you cutting for this? What are you in these other decks? Yeah, I agree. You know? This is not better than Snapcaster Mage. It's not better than Jace Vrin's Prodigy. It's definitely not better than um, Mentor. And it's not better than Dak Faden. It's the lack of it's restrictions not great for in blue outcome, cards. Is, but it could still no. be playable in outcome. Like 
Yeah. You can't get agreed. outcome with it, but you could Spellseeker for Ancestral, Flusterstorm, time or walk. Time Walk. And DT, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, it, it might be okay as a one of an outcome deck. Yeah. But, but you can't it, get Force. <laughs> it's, not, yeah. it's not great, though. I mean, it's not pushing that deck to use a metric that you've mentioned a couple of times. It doesn't push that deck into a new stratosphere of the metagame. It doesn't help that deck against any of its other matchups. It helps you think. go get your one Fragmentize. Maybe. Yeah, maybe it helps against shops. But then again, it's a three-mana spell. So yeah. in as much There's as any three-mana spell could... can help you against shops, this does, exactly. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think this is vintage playable, but won't see play in the next three months. So I guess the best-case scenario is like you're playing a blue deck, and you go, imagine you go Mox, Land, uh, Land Mox, Mox, Spellseeker. You're now down to three cards in your hand, and now you can go get Ancestral Recall or Time Walk. That, that seems pretty productive. Um, it doesn't Does seem it? bad at all. Well, I mean, you're down to you're back up to four cards. You draw a card for your fifth card. Then you can play the card you got in the first instance. That seems okay. I think part of the issue is that there's not a, like like none of these decks are put over the top if they had a tutor. They're not mm. saying you know oh god I really need another tutor effect. I mean Imperial Seal is in the format and sees no play. Yeah. So and you know, the, the what decks need right now is not tutors. The draw and consistency. Yep. This does add a consistency element, but we're so good, we're so mana efficient at getting our consistency via cantrips now and via JVP and things like that, that reaching into three mana for that is unnecessary, effectively. Agreed. And also, the whole landmox mox scenario you just described is is diminished in its likelihood given there are so many decks that only play on color moxin right now. Right. All right, I'm going to go with zero for Spellseeker for now. I'm hoping it's more than that. I'm excited it will be more than that, but I'm also zero. I know that there are players who are interested Wait, in it. People like Brian Kelly and Rich Shea are lamenting the fact that these cards aren't on Magic Online for a while. Yeah, I mean, and I think the reason is not because they want to match up the metagames, but because, and I'm guessing, but because they would like to be able to test it out. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. it's completely reasonable. You should, even if the metagames can't match completely, <laughs> you should still be able to test with the cards that are at least testable. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yes. That's the problem with using Magic Online is your primary is your only or even primary testing um, platform. But yep. I'm in that boat. Yep. All right. Our last card for the night is an exciting one. Archon of Valor's Reach. Creature Archon for four GW Flying Vigilance Trample. As Archon of Valor's Reach enters the battlefield, choose artifact, enchantment, instant sorcery, or planeswalker. Players can't cast spells of the chosen type. Five six. This card is is the real <laughs> deal. I think this is, there's some serious disruptive elements going on here. Unpack that. So a lot of vintage. Okay, so a lot of vintage decks are their active card pool is very narrow by type, and by that I mean workshops. The classic example. Every one of those cards is an, is an artifact, except their lands. Jess guy is has a mixture of instant sorceries and creatures and planeswalkers, but in a given situation, like if you're casting an Archon of Valor's Reach, the practical impact of those cards becomes very narrow. The only things that interact with it really are instants and planeswalkers, like Swords to Plowshares yeah. and Jace the Mind Sculptor. And something like Paradoxical Outcome, for example. If this card were to resolve, then the ways that they have to win the game you know, dr- dramatically shrink down <laughs> to just basically Outcome and maybe Tinker. And so even though Vintage has a diverse format with many, many card types across the popular decks. The operational card types, once a creature like this is entering play, become dramatically smaller 
and you can, I think, realistically expect to heavily, heavily reduce your opponent's options to very narrow windows if this resolves. Well, that's pretty interesting. I mean, that's a heady... You've just kind of, like, dove straight into the disruptive <laughs> element of this. I wasn't even starting there. Yeah. I mean, I think... Um, First of all, this is a Brian Kelly creature, right? And by Brian Kelly creature, I mean a large-ish, mid-size, but not extremely expensive card that you can oath up, but just as easily hard cast yep. and is an effective finisher. I mean, there's a, um, there's a reason why they call him the Dragon Lord, because he yeah. made a name for himself <laughs> casting Dragon Lord Dramica, which has this mana cost. <laughs> exactly. Um, the second point I would make is that this card... You you automatically went to an offensive use. Mm-hmm. I think of it in terms of defense. I think what's most interesting about this card is that it can come into play and then turn off the removal that might be used to remove it. Absolutely. So it might be really difficult to remove once it lands. I mean, like, and by difficult, I mean nearly virtually impossible. Oh, yeah. Plenty of decks. If you if you name instant with this against Jeskai, for example, their only out will be creature combat, which is... Yeah, really hard so, against a five six flyer oh and jace the mind sculptor and thing in the ice <laughs> yeah well and, and no supreme verdict is played balance is played yeah. so you don't yeah it's not a zero percent situation but you as right. i said supremely narrow their opt your option right the other thing this card reminds me of is iona oh yeah remember how this this hits uh, iona hits colors this hits card types i actually think i think if you just abstracting that one element out of the card, ignoring mm-hmm. all the other features of Iona and the power toughness, all that. I think this is better than hitting colors because yes. artifact. Yes, I agree. The word artifact <laughs> changes the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you there. Uh, as pertains to those two things and that one axis, this is superior. Yeah, I think that's actually really insane. And this might just be a world beater against, I mean, I think this is going to be play. Because I think if I don't know what Brian Kelly has in his sideboard for oath, I mean <laughs> for oath against against shops, but isn't this just then the best anti-shop creature like well, ever? <laughs> I, I actually think there are better ones. I think Bane of Progress is actually a better anti-shop creature than this because this doesn't affect the board. So yeah, it's worth true. noting that you can you could cast and or oath this up and still just get run over. Yes, it's a great blocker, true, but it doesn't affect the board at all. So we have to acknowledge that. Bane of Progress, for example, destroys all artifacts when it comes into play and enchantments and gets huge. So there are better things. But Bane of Progress has never made a splash in it, despite the fact that CFB submitted it in their dredge deck this week. Um, But operationally, Bane of Progress is garbage against most of the rest of the format. Yeah, it could get one over on outcome if you get lucky. But You get like one half Bane of Progress plus all this other stuff. (laughs) But this is... yeah. This is good against basically every deck in the format. Yes. There's no deck I mean, in the Storm, format that I wouldn't... If you said, hey, you could have one of these in play, I wouldn't say yes. Now, Storm it's symmetrical, though. Ex- Storm cannot beat this. Um, it still could, because what do you name? If you name, if you name instant, instant, they can still kill you with a combination of artifacts and sorceries. Sure, I guess that's true. If you name sorcery, they can just chain a vapor this and then kill you. Yeah, so if you name sorcery, they're down to like one card. Well, if it, they, it, If you name instant... They have a huge road to hoe to get there. <laughs> well, and it's worth noting, as I was just saying, this card's symmetrical. It says players can't cast spells of the oh, chosen type. So if you're oh, trying to beat Storm yeah. Combo, you're probably not going to want to name Instant. Instant. You'll name Sorcery. You'll name and Sorcery your- and narrow their options. Yeah. Interesting. Then they probably can't beat you because they can't clear your hand. 
They wow. can defense grid and they can try their best to, to chain a vapor this. Wow, Kevin. But Wow, the symmetry is insane. Think about this in the Oath Mirror. You play this and you sideboard out your Oath. Yeah, and you name Creature. No, I was going to name Enchantment, but sure, we can name that too. Why, why would you name the card that both players have boarded exactly. out? Exactly. <laughs> wait. Yeah, yeah, it's you're the right. Oath Mirror. You should yeah, have Oath. Yeah, in. yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no you're no, right. Yeah, the, the Oath Mirror could become a race to this card yeah. because if you play it and name creature, your opponent's yeah. only out then basically becomes Planeswalkers, and it's situational, wow. right? Yeah, but you can still this fight over is... Jace the Mind Sculptor if you've played this naming creature. This also this card also creates a whole bunch of sub games, which is awesome. Right. Also, if you're playing against shops and you want to play artifacts, you can just name creature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. But also, what you really want to do is name artifacts and then Hercules them. <laughs> and it, and at, at which point, it's worth noting that this thing has vigilance and trample, which means they can't get back at you with factories unless they have two wow. factories and they're willing to sacrifice this, one every turn. This not being on Magic Online really hampers out. Yeah. So here's here's my question for you. Yeah, it's a beating against decks that only have one card type in them. I mean, that's that's no that's not brain surgery. And yeah, it's good against combo, but combo, you know, DPS was a 0% at, at uh, SCG Con Day 2. What does this do against Jeskai? Here's my question to you. Um, if an Oath player plays this against me, I think I'm less scared of it than I am of Carnage Tyrant, but it's basically as bad as Gristlebrand. I mean, it's, it's if they name Instant, I can't play Gush, Ancestral, uh, I can't play Pyroblast, I can't, I guess I can fragmentize an Oath. <laughs> That's not, I can't plow this. Fragmentizing um, an oath kind of is irrelevant at that point. Exactly. Um, uh, the uh, there's no answer. The only answer I have is one balance, but I can't mystical for it. Yeah, it's a it's a it's devastating. It's, it's worth noting it's for our audience that you were not playing Jace the Mind Sculptor in your list at SCG Con, but many I players play, do. I played Jace Fringe Prodigy, and right. and and when people play when Jeskai players play Jace the Mind Sculptor, they usually only play one. Yeah. So. Yeah. But, so I think you've properly identified the result. You're probably going to name instant because that protects this from plow, but it also turns off all your own counter magic. So if your opponent plays balance, it will resolve. If your opponent True. plays Jace the Mind Sculptor, it will resolve. Yeah, the way you overcome the balance, though, is just give them a token. Well, I, I understand. <laughs> balance yeah. is not a, it's not an earth you know, earth-shattering thing when you're playing an oath deck. I understand that. But Jace the Mind Sculptor is just going to resolve if they put it onto the stack with this card naming instant. So I think we need to be cautious about this card's role in the broader metagame. Against Jeskai, would, do you want to have this in play? I think on average you do, right? If you told me against Jeskai I could start the game with one of these in play naming instant, I think I would take it. <laughs> and if you told me I could oath it up reliably as my first creature, I think I would take it. But it's not, it's not a sure thing. If they're the sort of Jeskai control deck that has access to Supreme Verdict and Balance and Jace the Mind Sculptor, it's not a sure thing. Yeah, I think this is going to see play in Vintage Top 8. Yeah. Do you, do, you think think? It, do you think it's main deck? Do you think it's sideboard? Six of one, half dozen of the other. You think a, a, bit of, a bit of both? Okay. Yeah. I think that's reasonable. I think people are excited about it. I believe that Brian Kelly is. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't spoken to him about it. I just I just know that he and Rich were you lamenting. You would imagine. Yeah. yeah. And I believe that many other players will be interested. Uh, I think this is going to be experimented with a lot, and I agree with you. I think this will see Top 8 play. I think it's a real beating against a handful of archetypes, and that's good enough for me. Um, but I, I'm skeptical about its utility against Jeskai. I'm going to have to play against it a few times. I mean, I know it's capable of winning a game. 
but I also think it can be a liability against decks that have diverse answers and threats. And Jeskai is nothing if not that. I'm also a little bit concerned about what you do against outcome. Do you do you just name instant and be happy? I mean, we're talking about a deck that has Tinker yeah. in it. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I do. Okay, I think you're going to be happy because you have plenty of Planeswalkers deck, that kind of thing. So true. Go, them trying to go through Tinker Blightsteel with once this resolved is also a liability on their part. Yeah, right. now and that I think a about lot it, of time you only need four turns to win. Yeah, now that I think about it, in fact, that's a serious one-two punch. If you can oath this or resolve it against outcome and name instant, they have alternate win conditions, but most of them just go through artifacts, right? Yep. Key Vault. Yeah. Tinker. And so you can still lose to Key Vault, granted, but they have to set it up. You have Ancient Grudges quickly. too. Well, yeah. but you named instant. Oh, sure. Good point. So this plus DAC is a, is a serious beating for them. Yeah. If you think they might be able to go through Tinker immediately, like they have neither half of Key Vault in play, then you can hold a deck in your hand and really get one over on them if they go the Tinker route. But it, this could this card could cause Oath players to differentiate their card types even further. It might be that more sorcery speed removal is in order. It might be that you turn one of those Ancient Grudges into a Shattering Spree in the main because you get a ton of value if you can name instant and still have game <laughs> against your opponent's secondary strategy. I can no longer hear what you're saying because the only thing that's running through my head is I need to test this out in Oath. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Oath might be really, really good with this. It might be one of those instances of, you know, elevating an archetype, one of the four, you know, up a notch. Yeah, well, I was just about to make that same point if you didn't. And that is, we've talked about a number of cards well, not a number. We've talked about three cards prior to this. And in every case, we kind of reached the conclusion that this is has some utility, but it doesn't do what you just said. It These other cards didn't push an archetype into a new echelon. This card could, at least in certain matchups. Yeah. I mean, Oath vis-a-vis Shops, yes. Oath vis-a-vis Paradoxical Outcome, yes. Oath vis-a-vis Jeskai, yes. See, I'm, I'm not convinced on the Jeskai one still, but that's okay. I think I'm, it's I'm huge. open to being wrong. You can't plow it. <laughs> it's good. It's I, I understand. Huge. I understand. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm probably going to be pretty miserable the first time this comes into play against me. So I'm prepared for that. Yeah, I think this card's good. So it also v- makes it difficult for us to predict, given that our method for prediction is so often dependent on previous performance by the expected archetype or similar cards and at least as of late oath's performance has been spotty and scg con was not a good showing for it well can't we just take whatever you know the the sideboard like let's just say uh, what's the green creature we were just talking about the anti-workshop green creature let's just Be- use that as of a progress yeah let's just use that as a is a yeah but that's not, not a, that's not, not a metric but let's use it no let's using it as a starting point how many brain of progresses have been in top eight uh, close to zero. Let's see. In 2018, there was one. <laughs> ben Perry had one in his sideboard for a TSI. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Early this year. Carni- what about yeah. Carnage Tyrant? Carnage Tyrant. See, that's a pretty different animal. But I take your meaning. So Carnage Tyrant has. Are we, so how much time are we looking at? It's June right now. We're looking back into March. Yeah, zero. No one. I'm sorry. Nope. There was one in March, early March, in a 17-person tournament. Okay. Let's try one more. Yep. Look up Gisela. Gisela. Now that's, I know, more popular lately. Gisela, going back to March, has one, two, three, three top eights. I think that's the range. I think it's probably a little bit better than that around there. I mean, Gisela is for workshops, right? Partly? Um, 
that also oh, splash damage against chess guy, but it's it's yeah. real strong against workshops. You're right. I think yeah, Brian I think adopted Gisela pr- heavily because of its interaction with Walking Ballista. Yeah, so I think that I think that's the range. I think we're looking at like two to six, something like that, maybe a little more. I would say this card is more exciting than Gisela. Would, would you agree? Yes, but here's the problem: mm-hmm. we're restricted to paper, so all there's not it's not going to appear in any vintage challenges top eight. That yeah. takes out the vast majority. I mean, that takes out literally like 16 possible top eights for the next three months. So <laughs> the you look know, on your face y- is right. like morose. It can only be described as morose in response to that. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. It's it's a sad thing. And um, it does compromise our ability and our methodology here. Not mine, because I accounted for it. Well, I mean, okay, <laughs> fine. But overall... <laughs> So I'm looking at Wizards' announcement regarding Battlebond and Magic Online. The good news is that I'm quoting here, Battlebond cards are coming to Magic Online. The slightly less good news for now, not all of them are. We're really excited to be bringing such a fun and different set to Magic Online world, but we've run into a few unexpected delays. However, we're actively working on it, and the plan is to get as many Battlebond cards as possible into your electronic hands. So they've acknowledged the fact that they're not going to be available all told. They link over to their Tumblr, which says, as of what date is this post on? Three weeks ago, they said, Hi folks, I want to update everyone on where we are with getting Battlebond cards into Magic Online. As we said before, the cart, the downtime for the M19 release on July 5 will bring with it select Battlebond cards into treasure chests. Here's what's coming. Commons and uncommons, rares. The, the lands, peers, whim, stolen strategy, virtues maneuver, bonus round, Corvette's fury, last one standing. Regna's Sanction, Thrilling Encore, Together Forever, Victory Chimes, Zinder Split, Judgment, and Generous Patron. Mythic Rares, Arcane Artisan, Arc Fiend of Despair, Arena Rector, Bramble Sovereign, Brightling, Najila, and Stunning Reversal. So, neither of these cards are in the list that'll be coming live in, in uh, Treasure Chests on the, the M19 downtime. Wow. So it'll be at least a couple months after that before this comes out. They say we're optimistic that in the next few release cycles after M19, we can allocate resources to get more Battle Bond cards into the game. Oh, they say they address Spellseeker. Spellseeker in particular is a high priority for the first release after M19, given the discussion around its potential legacy implications. So they're aware of the issue. So here we are. Uh, And I agree with you, everything you just said. So that means that we're back down to just a onesie, twosie, probably kind of appearance, given that popular players and popular testing on magic online will not result in any appearances in the next three months well yeah our next three months when is the next set review after m19 will be doing uh i don't know but it's approximately three months after m19 okay so it'll be before eternal weekend uh yes yeah yeah so well well, it makes it uh, i'll just i'll just say three then yeah i was just gonna say three also uh so i'll take the i'll take the over I'll, I'll, i'll go under if you want it to go three i'll go two i'll go two okay I'll take three, you take two. Um, yeah, this is kind of disheartening that this card that is apparently the most interesting <laughs> one from Battlebond for Vintage is is not on Magic Online for a while. So that does it for Battlebond. Thank you for listening to episode 80 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Ha, 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 ha.